It's far more frightening if one were to sit in a room and suddenly a chair that one has known all one's life begins to rock or suddenly begins to glide over the floor toward you. That'd be a far greater monster than anything Hitchcock ever mm -hmm. showed. Or if you heard a noise outside and you turn and that old familiar bush outside the window, the branches were suddenly like long fingers scraping at the window toward you. I need to go further. This is Elmer Peterson in London. Here in Britain, we have the feeling now of moving forward quickly into the fifth winter of the war. The blackouts grow longer, more intense. By day, London emerges at its old durable self, cold and dismal at times, but always solid and enduring despite its wartime scars. But nighttime is something else again. There are times now when dark... In the fall of 1943, the U.S. Internal Revenue Service ruled that corporate money spent on advertising was deductible from an excess profits tax. Companies had a sudden excess of cash. The IRS gave the advertisers two options, spend it or send it into the government. Most chose to spend it. Radio was soaring. The network saw a 20% gain in revenue, and NBC sold out its entire 7 to 11 primetime schedule. For the men and women employed by the industry, it meant more jobs than ever before, even for those whose best days were behind them. Surely, during the break, we were talking a little bit about when the mishaps would happen or people wouldn't be around, that you always had a backup handy. The actors in the hallways. The actors lined up in the hallways. They were always two or three or four sitting, waiting for something to happen. Either that or just coffee class. Or huh? just, yeah, right, <laughs> visiting with visiting, one another. Telling about what they could have been. Exactly. <laughs> and suddenly the big break happens and they are. Knowing right? each other. I mean, it was heaven what they had done in their past. One. I'll never forget was Dickie Ryan. Did you oh, know Dickie? Oh, God, of course. Sweet, darling man. I tell you, out of he, audible. he came out of right. Audible. And yeah. most of them did. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. Right. But in the early days, he would sit in the lobby at CBS. And you know, there were several times when he really did get a chance to go in and do something mm -hmm. because an actor didn't show up. So it worked. I mean, it paid off. Well, it was also good because the telephones which go to your exchange, go to your answering service, always <laughs> kept a phone there. That's right. And a lot of actors who didn't work, but who wanted people to think they were working, would run to the phone and pick the phone up and say anything for and whatever their name was. And then they would say, really? What time? And they'd pull out a piece of paper right. and a, or a pad and a pen or a pencil and write it down. At what time? Which studio? Oh, okay. I'll be right there. <laughs> So it looked really good. Looked they, official. It's the same thing as the people who used to go into the Brown Derby and get themselves paid Paged. in exactly. case there was right. anybody there who didn't know they were still around. Or right? found an old script and or, shoved it right, in their pocket. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Always walked around with a script I, in the I pocket. I always remember Frank Nelson. He always had four or five scripts sticking out of his pockets. And they you were knew going, he was his were, his were legitimate. His were legitimate. Yeah. This yeah. Thank you very much. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob broadcasting from NBC again. It's been a long, long time hope. Telling you whether you're a soldier or a civilian, if you see a girl that's well stacked like a deck and you like the neck, use Pepsi and buy Heck and you'll have her spellbound like Gregory Peck. The major networks covered over 80% of the U.S. Twelve shows had a rating higher than a 20. Bob Hope led all programs with a rating of a 31.7. But just ten years later, television had decimated radio's audience. Only four shows had ratings higher than ten. Hi. I, I guess this is goodbye. Try not to cry too hard for me, baby. And don't 
bury me too deep. During the decade in between, NBC's Blue Network became ABC, and widespread transcription became the norm. And with over 95% of homes and cars installed with radios, the medium connected Americans with their land, their communities, and their holidays, like the one that tonight we'll experience together. Halloween. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. In every vampire's life come moments now and then when goodness seems to threaten you. Don't yield, don't bend, you'll triumph in the end. A wicked thought will pull you through. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 96. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we'll laugh, scream, and cry while we join radio's best as they celebrate Halloween on the air. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is called A Wicked Thought. It was recorded in 1960 by John Zacherly for his LP Spook Along with Zacherly. Last October's episode 84 of Breaking Walls focused on the art of the horror show. So if you're looking for a history of the mystery, please give it a listen. And if you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series. It'll be set in 1830s New York City, and it is in development. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. And you can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. I did several things. The first thing I ever did there was an Italian father, and that's how I happened to get on the show. There was somebody in an orchestra that used to play the part, and he was snowbound or something <laughs> up in Wisconsin, couldn't make uh-huh. it. And I had worked with Marion and Jim Jordan on Colton Myers' Kindergarten, which uh-huh. was a show they used to do even after they did Fibber McGee. They loved doing it. Mm-hmm. And I did it, this Italian father, and then I stayed on the show and did, uh, oh, a number of parts. Gooey Fooey, A Laundry Man. George Fiditch, kind of an insurance salesman. <laughs> Were you gooey fooey? I was surprised to know that. Oh, yeah. And I did a character, Perry, the Portuguese piccolo player in Ted Weems' band. That's when <laughs> Perry Como was still in the band. Uh-huh. Took over the part that an actor by the name of Tom Post had played. It. Mm-hmm. He was the Mayor Appleby, and McGee called him Mayor Applepuss, you know. Uh-huh. I played George Gildersleeve first. 
than Harry Gildersleeve. And I, I heard one program that you're Homer Gildersleeve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don Quinn loved the name Gildersleeves. He tried out several things. Oh, you, I have another show where you were an interior decorator. Yes. An Italian wrestler. <laughs> I remember that. We had a lot of fun on the show. Actually, I had played the voice, but he mm -hmm. wasn't born until Molly became quite ill. Mm -hmm. And she was off the show for a few months. And then they kind of pumped up all the smaller parts, like myself mm -hmm. and things that Bill Thompson did. And suddenly we were very important to the show. Well, they gave the Gildersleeve character an opportunity, and I threw in that laugh one night that yeah. I had never used on the show, and that was it. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. Each week at this time, the Kraft Cheese Company presents for your enjoyment... Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. We'll hear from the Great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But right now, here's a message of very great importance for today's menu maker. On August 31st, 1941, Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve stepped off a train in the town of Summerfield, bringing with a now common concept in American entertainment, the series spin-off. Gildersleeve had begun as a character on Fibber McGee and Molly. The man behind the voice was Harold Perry. Perry joined the cast in 1937, first playing every kind of bit part imaginable. He was born Harold José de Faria to Portuguese parents on July 25, 1908. In January of 1923, the 14-year-old Harold had his first radio appearance at KZM in Oakland. By the late 1920s, he was working for NBC in San Francisco. Migrating to Chicago in 1937, he soon became one of radio's insiders, gaining a reputation as a top utility man. In the old days in Chicago, I used to do seven voices on the Tom Mix Ralston Straight Shooter Show, uh -huh. which a lot of people don't know about, I guess. That was way back in... 37, 38, 39. Well, you once played Sheriff Mike Shaw on that show, well, didn't did, you? Uh, I did Mike Shaw on a voice like that. I did an Englishman on a voice like that. <laughs> and I did uh, Henry Akins, who was a town banker, in a voice like that. And I did Hawk Barrett, who was a villain. And I also did Hawk Barrett's brother, who was named Shotgun Barrett, in the same voice, except he had a lift. <laughs> and then, of course, I did Lee Lu, the Chinese cook. My, you are that was seven. You are. I did, I did chief, an Indian chief, also. Yeah. And then when I left in '39 to come here with Fibber McGee and Molly, why well, there were four or five fellows that took over the park. But say, there's a next door neighbor of theirs, Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. Where? Where? That portly gent with the mustache on the platform, the one making a speech to his employees. How do you know they're his employees? Because every time he goes away, he gives them an hour off to come down to the station and wave goodbye. Oh, so that's Mr. Gildersleeve. Well, I. can't tell you how touched I am to see all the employees of the Gildersleeve Girdle Works down here at the station to bid me goodbye. <laughs> it's indeed... Uh, by the way, is there anyone left at the plant? Uh, well, uh, no. What if some orders come in? Who'll take the phone calls? Uh, Mert. Oh, Mert, eh? <laughs> yeah. As I was saying while I'm away, I expect every one of you to uphold Gildersleeve Girdles to the best of your ability. And don't forget our motto. If you want the best of corsets, of course it's Gildersleeve. <laughs> Very good, T.P., very good. Thank you, thank you. You'll get a raise. 
And though it's necessary for me to go away and attend to other enterprises... In the late 1930s, Perry approached McGee's head writer Don Quinn with an idea for a reoccurring role. He wanted to play a pompous windbag who himself ran the biggest bluff in Wistful Vista. He thought it the perfect foil for McGee. Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve's first appearance was on September 26, 1939. All aboard. Yes, all aboard. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Out of my way, everybody. Where are my bags? On the train, T.P. Thanks. I forgot to buy a ticket. Where do I buy a ticket? On the train, T.P. Oh, yes. Let go of me, boys. Where are you pushing me? On the train, T.P. Yes. Goodbye, children. Goodbye, children. Then, mm-hmm. see, after they called the character Throckmorton, then uh-huh. I moved in next door. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And you remember, I was his neighbor, uh-huh. and, and I even had a wife on the show, but she was never heard. She was oh. only talked about. Did know? she have a name? Molly just occasionally said, oh, there's Mrs. Gildersleeve. Oh, Mrs. Gildersleeve, I see. I that see. was about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that when I made the transition from my own show and became a bachelor, mm-hmm. why, uh, I don't think I even had one letter asking, what happened to your wife? Because <laughs> no one ever had ever heard of her. Side-splitting, isn't it? Going to be in Summerfield long? Oh, no, just three or four days. I'm taking over the administration of my brother-in-law's estate. They're going to run it for my niece and nephew. Yeah, but that's quite involved, and I'm hungry. Which way is the diner? Why, an old, experienced traveler like you should know where the diner is. Huh? Oh, of course. No matter where you are, the diner's always at the other end of the train. <laughs> See you later. In Summerfield, Gillersleeve was guardian to his niece and nephew, Marjorie and Leroy Forrester. Marjorie was studious and curious and seldom gave Gildy trouble. Leroy, age 12, was the wise guy. The household also had a voice for common sense. Housemaid Bertie Lee Coggins, introduced in September. There was a somewhat of a difference between the Gildersleeve character that was on the Fibber McGee show and then the, what would it have been, a warmer character perhaps well, that, yes. that you created for yes, the... I was an antagonist, you know, to McGee uh-huh. on his show, uh-huh. which when I left, that's what Gail Gordon became. Mayor uh, Latrivia. McGee yes. had to have somebody that he could fight all the time. Mm-hmm. When I decided to do my own show, of course, why then I warmed the character up a little bit, even changed the uh, the attitude, you know, mm-hmm. so that he became a warmer person. And because he had a family to raise, and it wasn't too difficult to do, all I had to do was kind of lighten up the voice a little bit and make the laugh a little more human. We were just lucky. I just happened to hit the air at the right time and made it, you know? Lillian Randolph voiced Bertie while Leroy was played by Walter Tetley. And the first Marjorie was voiced by Lorene Tuttle. You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the the full person. At least I did, and I know that all of us tried to work that way because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up if you really had true imagination anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too, because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart or Frederick March or Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or Leslie Howard, and on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wished to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. The show was originally to be sponsored by Johnson's Wax, but they ultimately passed. Kraft Foods bought the show for a full-season run. Gildersleeve would air on NBC Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. It served as a programming bridge between the 6 p.m. Catholic Hour and the 7 p.m. Jack Benny program. I want a penny's worth of that and a penny's worth of that. By the autumn of 1943, Perry had become a film star. In 
storyline, Gildersleeve was now Summerfield's water commissioner. He also had a love interest, the Southern Belle, Leela Ransom, voiced by Shirley Mitchell. Yeah. And they wrote her so magnificent. Well, she was perfect for Gildersleeve, oh, perfect, too, because he perfect. was a He's absolute, such a party. Uh, yeah, right, absolute foil for right. her, right? And uh, on that one tape that I played recently, you know, I do it for my kids, and I get such a funny feeling. It, the voice is lighter, and it's almost like deja vu. You think, oh, my gosh, was I really like that? But I just loved her. He sings, speak to me of love to her. You know, he would sing those chords. <laughs> And she'd sigh through and do things like, oh, this rock, Lord. It was really <laughs> delicious. What's the matter? Isn't my candy good enough for you? Why, of course. It's just that I make a habit, Stanley, of not eating candy in the morning. That October, RKO released the film, Gildersleeve on Broadway. Actually, you made a few movies as uh, Gildersleeve, too, didn't you? Well, I made three movies at RKO with Fred McGee and Molly and Edgar Bergen uh -huh. and Lucille Ball as Gildersleeve. And then I made a series of six of my own pictures, which was called the Gildersleeve series. And I even did one at Paramount with Bob Burns called Coming Around the Mountain. With, oh. oh, a lot of people. Even Uncle Ezra was brought out from <laughs> Chicago to work in it. I think that that hit the Late Late Show here not too long ago. No. We yell and scream and tell our listeners about it whenever uh, one of those scenes comes on. I think Heavenly Days was a Fibber McGee and Molly one. I believe yeah. you were in that too, weren't yeah. you? I was in Look Who's Laughing in Heavenly Days. Oh, and I did one other one. And then I did one with Lucy Ball and Victor Mature called Seven Days Leave as Gildersleeve, as an attorney, while I was at RKO. As it was all about the Court of Missing Heirs. Uh -huh. you remember that radio show? Oh, yes, sure. And I was the attorney representing that particular show. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. I read somewhere along the line that uh, when you started as Gildersleeve in the movies, you had to go on a diet to gain weight. <laughs> well, yes. When I started doing the Gildersleeve character in pictures, I only weighed about 195, which was pretty big for my size, but it wasn't big enough, you know, mm -hmm. and I was quite young. So I did. I started eating things, you know, that would make me heavier. And by the time I got to my own series, which was then about 1942, a year after I started the radio show, I actually weighed 227. And when I decided wow. I didn't want to do any more of those pictures because I wasn't very happy with them, I just went on a diet and lost 50 pounds. RKO hadn't seen me for about two months because we were on a sort of a sabbatical. And, of course, the, uh, the head of the company almost collapsed when he saw me. <laughs> I looked 15 years younger. I was down to 176. Oh, my goodness. Boy, that's... I remained that way for an awful long time. In the midst of a monumental raiding season, on October 31st, 1943, Gildersleeve and his family celebrated Halloween. Now let's see what goes on at the home of the great Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. It's Saturday evening, the day before Halloween, and his niece is giving a dance. All afternoon, he's been rolling up carpets, putting extra leaves on the dining room table, carrying out furniture, and carrying it in again. But now that the heavy work is done, he finds himself brushed aside. After an early makeshift supper, he wanders forlornly out to the kitchen to watch last-minute preparations there. Oh, what are you making there, Bertie? Frosting? Yes, sir. Say, that looks mighty good. Do you mind if I just... Come on. Uh, uh. Mr. Gildersleeve, a man can lose a finger that way. Mm, mm, mm. It's wonderful, though, Bertie. Say, don't you think you've beaten that about enough? Ain't sure if it's stiff enough. Oh, well, I'll just see. Uncle Maud, really? Just tasting it, my dear. Mr. Gildersleeve, if you keep tasting, there ain't gonna be frost enough to put in your eye. Who wants it in his eye? 
you'd like to put a little on a piece of bread now. Oh, Lord, go out and play. Yes, go out and play. Bertie, don't you think it's about time we took another peek at that cake? Cake? I'll do it. Stay away from that oven. Oh, oh excuse me, Mr. Gilsley, but you want that cake to fall? Uh, I was just trying to help. Run along, Uncle Mort. I'll look at the cake, Bertie. You either. What? If some of the people don't get out of this kitchen, I'm going to go clean out of my mind. Well, Bertie, I was just Well, you're more trouble than all the rest of them. Yeah. You want me to fix a party? You got to give me a chance. I ain't no Superman. No, sir. All I got is two hands. Paint to come in here, track uh, and dirty. Come on, Marjorie. I think Bertie wants mind. to be alone. Let's go in the other room. After you. Oh, Leroy, for heaven's sake. I am Frankenstein the Wolfman. I eat up little girls. Let go. I walked with a zombie. The undying monster. Leroy. The living dead. Stop that and take off that mask. It's only me, Unc. Did I scare you? Yes. I don't know how you expect to scare anybody. You've been going around in that rig scaring people for a week. Well, I'm just practicing being horrible. You don't need any practice. <laughs> Uncle Mort, you make him promise to keep away from my party. I just know he's going to... Oh, oh, that's probably for me. Don't worry, glamour puss. I wouldn't be caught dead at your party. Hello? Is that you? No, it's me. <laughs> oh, I couldn't tonight, Lester. No, I'm sorry. No, I couldn't possibly. Why don't you tell him you're giving a party and he's not invited? Shut up, Leroy. Let her alone, Leroy. Pardon the interruption. Brad again. Go on, tell me all about it. I don't know what kind of a Halloween party this is anyway. No games, no pumpkins. <laughs> what did you used to do on Halloween, Unc? Oh, we did a lot of things, my boy. Made jack-o'-lanterns, bobbed for apples. Pretty corny. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Well, uh, <laughs> we had one little trick. Yeah? What was it? Well, we used to take two buckets of water. Yeah? And when it got dark, we'd put them on each side of somebody's front walk, and we'd tie them together with a piece of cord across the walk, and then when somebody came along... Well, you can imagine. <laughs> hey, that's great. Uh, it was a very thoughtless, wicked thing to do, Leroy. <laughs> I hope you will never do anything like that. Are you kidding? I mean it. Somebody might trip and hurt themselves badly. Remember that. Yes, sir. There's one other thing to remember. What's that? Only fill the buckets halfway. It won't work if they're full. <laughs> Somebody, I'm on the phone. Well, get off it. I'll go. Oh, I've got to hang up now. Goodbye, Lester. Yeah, so much for Lester. It's Wally Hoff. Uh, Wally Hoff. Well, the kid himself. Hiya, Junior. What are you supposed to be? Frankenstein. Oh, blow me down. Talk to Wally, will you, Uncle Mort? I'll be right down, Wally. I've got to run up and put on some lipstick. What for? It's coming right off. <laughs> uh, take these records, will you, son? And don't drop them. Got a couple of real oldies there. Red nickels. Gosh. Uh, uh, Mr. Hoff, my name is Gildersleeve. I'm Marjorie's uncle. Oh, hi. Heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot about you, too. Favorable, I trust. Anybody tuning tune this so-called piano lately? Young man, that's a Wembley. Oh, not bad. Hey, Wally, I can play a boogie bass now like you showed me. Look. Hey, that's not it. Look out. I didn't do it right. Let me just... Look out. Let me at it. Like music, Mr. Gildersleeve? I like music, Yes. Mr. Hoff, would you mind telling me something? Not at all. Shoot. That sweatshirt you're wearing, is that customary these days at dances, I mean? What else? In my day, we wore tuxedos. And we didn't wrestle. We danced. Oh, your day, your day. Your day is over, Uncle Mort. Yes, yes, I guess it is. Well, don't stop, Wally. Give up. What'll it be, gorgeous? Oh, anything at all. Only give. The party's dying and it hasn't even started. Uncle Mort, I 
don't want to be rushing you, but the gang will be here any minute. I can take a hint. Well, take Leroy with you. Why don't you see if Mrs. Ransom's doing anything tonight? Maybe I will, and maybe I won't. Oh, that's it. Play that. On with the dance. Let joy be unrefined. Oh, brother, even in my... Come on, Frankenstein. This is no place for us. You stick to Bach. That sounds like Piggy. Hey, Pig, wait up! That's his signal. See you later, Uncle. Wait a minute. Yeah? I won't ask you to keep out of mischief, Leroy. Just keep out of jail. <laughs> okay. Where are you going, Mrs. Ransom? Never mind. Run along. Hey, Pig, wait for Frankenstein. Nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to do. If I want to call on Leela, I will. And if I don't, I won't. Just hope she's in, that's all. Who's that? Boo! Oh, boo! Yeah. you mustn't do that. Yeah, but it's Halloween, Leela. No, it's not. Tomorrow's Halloween. I know, but they're celebrating it tonight. What are you doing, Leela? Well, I had this date for tonight, but at the last minute I was unable to go on account of a headache. Oh, that's too bad. Yes. Well, perhaps some other time. Oh, I feel much better now. Oh, you do? Uh-huh. Isn't that lucky? Will you go to the movies with me? Well, I don't know about tonight's Rock Mountain. I'm just scared to death of ghosts and witches and all. Oh, don't worry. I'll be with you. Uh, promise you'll stay close to me and protect me? I'd like to see the ghost that you get between us. <laughs> There'll be a slight wait inside for all seats. Oh, he says there'll be waiting, Martin. How many, please? How long will we have to wait, miss? The next complete showing will begin at 9.53. How many, please? 9.53? That's half an hour, Leela. Do you want to wait? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, make up your mind. Oh. Stepping to one side, please. Keeping the line moving, please. Shutting the mouth, please. <laughs> Rock well, they can't push me around. Evidently, our patronage is not wanted here, Leela. Let's go somewhere else. I declare, Throckmorton, I've never seen Summerfield so crowded. Why don't these people stay home nights? Well, I suppose we could at least drop in here and get a soda. Would you like a soda? I don't know. Would you? I don't know. Would you? Oh, look, a little boy in a mask. Well, that's more like it. That's the first real sign of Halloween. Oh, well, what's that thing he's swinging around? Oh, that's a sock filled with flour. Oh, we used to have more fun with those. Oh, he isn't going to hit somebody with it. <laughs> what do you think it's for? Uh, hello, little boy. Uh, hello there, Sonny. What's your name? Uh, oh, cat got your tongue, huh? You're not Piggy Banks, are you? You're not going to hit anybody with that, are you, little boy? Yes, careful now. Careful how you swing that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you go away, I'll give you a nickel. Listen, if you hit anybody... Look out now. If you're Piggy Banks, I'll tell your mother. Did you hear what I said? If you come near me with that, I'll... <laughs> come back here, you. I dare you. <laughs> Let me brush you off, Rockmore. Well, I think you might show a little more consideration, Leela. Oh, but you look so funny, darling. Come on, let's go in and get a soap. Well. 
during the 1943-44 season. The Great Gildersleeve show rating was 16.3. It was the highest ever for a show airing at 6.30 p.m. A time slot change and continued radio success was on the horizon. And by then, Lorene Tuttle was one of the busiest women in radio. were really all over radio. Oh, I should you? say I was. I used yeah. to do all kinds of voices, mm. too. I still can. I can go down to McGregor and sometimes do a little tiny girl. Can you, you know? give us a little, could you give us a little Let girl? Let me see. On um, a show over at CBS, Television City, I had to play a doll not too long ago. Let's see if I can get that voice again. Somebody pushed the little string on the doll, and I had to run upstairs and put my face into the microphone and be the doll while they were working the doll on the downstairs. Nobody knew the difference. See, Howard Duff was right. He said, you have to talk to Loreen Tuttle because she's a doll. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> oh. The Sam Spade show, when after a while, I think about the second year, I got involved with the Red Skelton show. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't stay there to do the, the Sam Spade show. So I would have to put our opening, dear little opening scene and our closing scene on um, record. And we would put that on during rehearsal and then I'd go and do the Red Skelton show. So I really wasn't there for the actual showing. They would just put my part on. Uh -huh. In other words, when the show... We would start to rehearse the spade show at 10 in the morning. Then I think we went on at 5 to 5.30 here, mm -hmm. and then probably later repeat, transcription record repeat. So about 2, I had to go over to the skeleton show. So they, between 1 and 2, and the others were sent out to lunch, Howard would stay there with me, and we would tape my opening and closing stuff. And I have those. I bought oh, those really? little records, uh -huh. Uh -huh. so I have them. I love to hear <laughs> Effie and Sam. Oh, it's, they're the most adorable love scenes ever written in the history of show business, uh, I think. Sam Spade, Howard Duff, uh, remembers the license number of his car. Uh, 37596. Ah, uh, you, you can't forget fit. it either. No, sir. <laughs> On July 12, 1946, over the American Broadcasting Company, a new detective show took to the air starring a relatively unknown 32-year-old actor named Howard Duff. The show's lead character was one of America's most famous fictional detectives. Yeah, and then I was back in the infantry again and at Salina, Kansas, of all places, and I got orders to come to Hollywood. Are you ready for this? For the Armed Forces Radio Service. It was the talk of the, the whole division. <laughs> this dumb fool is going to Hollywood. And what was it like in the Armed Forces? This was a pioneering effort in those days. Uh, the Armed Forces Radio Service? Armed, yes, that part of your career, yes. Well, actually, the they, didn't, the they didn't really know what to do with people like myself, who actually, I was not a writer per se. I was not a producer. I was not a director. So Elliot Lewis and myself and Alan Hewitt and a couple of other people were put in charge of... Uh, Elliot and I originally, we recorded regular commercial programs off the air 
and then we had to reassemble them because of censorship reasons, you know, in wartime, where certain things were verboten. And we reproduced them, as a matter of fact. That was our job. We, it was a separate department. We turned out an awful lot of programs a week. And how were these programs used? Were they... Oh, we, said, we a, had stations all over wherever American mm -hmm. troops were, in Alaska, Far East, uh, you know, in China, whenever, you know, when we can get into China, and, uh, and of course, the Western Pacific, New Guinea, and whatever. The hair-raising adventures of Sam Spade, detective, brought to you by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. It's me, Effie. Oh, Sam, I've been worried about you. Sid Weiss was just on the phone and he says digging up a corpse without a permit is against the law. It's all right, Effie. I just dug him up to say hello and put him back again. Oh, Sam. I'll be down in a couple of minutes to dictate my report, sweetheart. If I get lost on the way, you'll find me in City Hospital, the psycho ward, third straight jacket from the left. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. I suppose we should begin at the beginning. I hadn't been out of the Army too long. They uh, had this audition for this, what we thought was going to be a pretty good show. And everybody in town, uh, all the so-called leading men, I guess, auditioned for it. And I was lucky. Apparently my quality, I, voice quality I had appealed to Bill and the sponsors, I suppose. And I got it anyway and went on for practically scale. But that didn't matter in those days. It was a good idea to do it. And, uh, and the show kind of gradually began to take off. And, uh... and now, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest... Bill Spear, then at the helm of suspense, was in charge of the production. Well, Sam Spade is the detective of Dashiell Hammett. He is the hero of the Maltese Falcon. Right. The opening line in the Maltese Falcon of the novel is, My name is Sam Spade. How better writing can there be from Hammond? Because he doesn't fool around. There's no waste of time. Date, August 2nd, 1946. To Mrs. Gregory Denov. Subject, death of Dr. Denov. Larry White, Lawrence White, who was Dashiell Hammett's agent for a great many years, had always wanted me to do Sam Spade in one way or the other, but I had always been too busy. But it came at the exact right moment somehow. One day he said, now how about Sam Spade? After I was well launched into suspense many years. And I said, sure, let's do it. Double-breasted custom-made suit, count of tie, hand-tailored shirt, English shoes, hand-trimmed Van Dyke. Get me a blank check and send them in. Okay, Sam. Please come in. Mr. Spade will see you now, sir. Thank you. You are Mr. Spade, Sam Spade. What can I do for you? I'm the original plan had been first possibly to use Humphrey Bogart, who had played Sam Spade, of course, in the in the in the most famous version there ever will be of Sam Spade in movies, and Bogie perhaps would have been available. He would have cost us at that time three thousand dollars a week, which in radio was and certainly is, but was was big money. This whole Sam Spade show, the whole suspense show, never cost over five or six thousand dollars. I said no. I I foresee adding all the things up on one side or the other, that it would be better for us to find an unknown and start with him than be saddled to a star, great as he is, who's going to be going into movies, who's going to be back and forth, there's going to be trouble, he's going to leave for Africa when you want to do next week's show, and we didn't tape things then, there were no, uh, you had to do them live every week. 
And I found Howard Duff, who had played numerous parts and, you know, in the cast of, of Suspense and other shows that I did. We did the audition, and it was sold, I think, within 48 hours. I was very hot, if I do say so, at the time, and uh, they were waiting for a show from me, and Philip Morris bought it. And for me. Doctor, your best bet's the San Francisco Police Department. No, no, that's out of the question. Lorene Tuttle played Secretary Effie Perrine. You know, he used to say such a cute thing. I used to ask questions on the show, mm -hmm. I mean on the rehearsal, uh, for real, because I'm always saying, I don't understand this plot. I would always say to somebody, Howard or Bill Spear or somebody, I don't understand this plot. So they got to saying, down, Effie. Down, <laughs> Effie. And that's how that phrase got started. <laughs> it was a real thing. You know. Six of the first 13 episodes were adapted from Hammond Originals. The rest were written by Bob Talman and Joe Isinger. Announcer Dick Joy remembered those first weeks as a summer replacement on ABC. When the show began, as you know, it was on ABC for about 13 weeks or so. And we worked out of a small studio. And uh, things were a little chaotic at times. And the cues were missed, and one thing or another. We wound up one show in rehearsal. It seemed to be a little short. They didn't want to add too much to it. So they had three Smokey the Bear public service announcements for me to read. One was about 45 seconds, and one was 30 seconds, and then there was the, the panic one, 15 seconds or something. And just before I went on the air, Bill was wandering around the studio, and he turned to me and said, oh, yes, about those Smokey the Bear things, if we ever get to them, which I hope we don't. Yeah, I'll give you one finger for the long one, two for the short, three for read the quick one and get off. So as it turned out, the actors expanded rather well on the show, and we not only didn't have any time for any Smokey the Bears, we also didn't have any time for much of anything. So when we got to the end, the orchestra came up loud, and then he faded them down, and he pointed to me, and at the same time, he held up two fingers or something, and I looked at the clock in amazement. We'd done everything. We'd finished the credits, the sponsor ID, and everything else. It was only five seconds left, and there was no time for Smokey the Bear and getting off on time, so I said, Dick Joy speaking, this is ABC, the American Broadcasting <laughs> Company, and that was it. So the next week I came in, and I'm sure he timed this. Somebody probably tipped him off. He had his back to the door, and they were sitting around the cast table. And uh, as I opened the door, he said, you know, I have one observation about announcers. He said, they're all basically rather stupid. <laughs> and he said, uh, all you have to do to prove it is, you know, like last week, just point your finger at him, and he'll give his name. <laughs> in the fall of 1946, as the final episode of the ABC Summer Replacement Spade series was airing, production of the show moved to CBS. Wild Root remained the sponsor. CBS felt that Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist act had grown stale on NBC. It aired Spade opposite his show at 8 p.m. on Sunday nights. Although Bergen's rating remained steady at 22.7 over the next two seasons, The Adventures of Sam Spade jumped 8 points to 17.8 in 1947. It was probably the first program of its kind that attempted to do something more than just the slam bang, boom boom. He was a character. He was a definite character who had a great eye for the girls. We'd always open the show, you could hear the bottles clinking and the thing, and he'd pour himself a snort, you know, before mm -hmm. he'd do his uh, dictation to Effie. The whole attitude, I don't think, had ever been uh, explored the way we did, uh, the way that Bill uh, really brought about, because this is his, believe me, his conception and his production was impeccable, as I think you will agree, uh, Ed. Uh, he oh, yes. played a great deal of attention, not only to the stories, but uh, and to what we said. What we said was terribly important. He had a, his big hero was Dickens. Did he ever tell you that? No, I don't think he well, did. No, he tried to have get a Dickensian feeling about the interesting people that we had. He, he was a, you know, he, he insisted. The October 31st, 1948 episode, 
featured Lorene Tuttle doubling as a witch and Hollywood A-lister June Haddock as an uncredited lead. I think uh, most people associate Wild Road as being the, uh, the sponsor. Well, Wild Road, of course, you're right. That's right. The excerpt we have tonight is with the Wild Road commercial in tech. Yes, I say good. You like to hear it? Love to. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Moonshine. Oh, no, Sam, take off that ridiculous mask. <sighs> you look about as much like a demon. As a demon, check. Uh, fly your broom into the adjoining office, sister, and we'll weave a few spells. Uh, date, uh, Effie. Yes, Sam. What is this thing on my desk? Looks like a pumpkin. It is a pumpkin. I made it this afternoon. Here, I'll light it. Well, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? Eyes and nose and mouth. Looks like Lieutenant Dundee of Homicide. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, I guess everyone knows it's Halloween, even if they don't listen to the radio. Shall we? We shall. Uh, date, All Hallows' Eve, 1948, to Hillary Bright, Esquire, number 13, Black Place, City, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the Fairly Bright Caper. It was a fairly bright afternoon for the fog-bound Bay Area... There was no frost upon the pumpkin. In fact, there's yet no pumpkin. But I did see a black cat and several attractive wolf girls in broomstick skirts during the bus ride down the peninsula to your client's ancestral estate, Fairly Pines. A bat flew out of a hollow tree as I mushed up a road through some pine woods to the house. In the gathering dusk, I also observed the toad, a lizard, and a hootie owl, which, if memory serves, are staple ingredients for a witch's brood. And I observed, hobbling out of the forest, an authentic hag. She was wearing a dusty black robe, a peaked black hat, and her matted gray hair coiled serpent-like around her evil countenance. She leaned on a gnarled staff of hemlock, fixed me with her yellow, glittering eyes, and said... Hello, kiddo. Yes, am Which way's the house? Which house? Fairly fine. Lost my bearings, I did. I was looking for some fennel. Oh. I got the bat's wool riding up and newt's legs. Couldn't find no adder's forks, but reckon this here copperhead will do the trick. Uh, what are you going to do with all that stuff? It's for the brew. I'm the witch I hired for tonight. Name's Gudge. Born Sophia, but of course I don't have no Christian name anymore since I sold out to old scratch. Meet me down on my price, he did too. Look at that wart on my nose. What nose? Huh? Uh, the house is up that way. Mind if I walk along with you, pretty boy? I don't like girls. Huh? Uh, no, not at all, uh, ma'am. No need to be afeard. With a scroungy fee there obeying me, I'll be lucky if I give them a whiff of brimstone. Uh, not so close, please. But I did promise one manifestation and the scream of a soul in torment is the witching hour. Yeah. <laughs> find Mr. Hillary Bright. Oh, you're the detective, Miss Spade? Right. Oh, 
Well, I'm Homer Langdon, attorney for the Fairley Estate. Uh, come along, I'll take you to him. Sorry for that challenge just now. Been hearing strange noises around the grounds. You notice anything peculiar as you came up the road? Uh, well, there was an old lady. I use the term loosely. Looking for fennel? Yeah. Uh, that's the witch. Mr. Bright hired her for the party tonight. Takes her work kind of seriously, doesn't she? Well, you know how it is. Seasonal work. What does she do between Halloweens? Claims she hibernates. Got to feel you. Mrs. Fairley, Spade. She's uh, eccentric. Don't let her know. Check. Oh, here I am, Homer. What was it you wanted? Oh, it's the man from the caterer. No, Ophelia. This is Mr. Spade, the detective that Mr. Bright employed. Oh, well, about that recipe for the aspic. Cook says she's never heard of putting fennel and lizard's claws in a tomato aspic. And Mr. Bright says hemlock is poison. Uh, you've got it mixed up, Ophelia. That's the recipe for the witch's brew. Well, anyway, the grocer says he doesn't stock them, so you'll have to garnish it with parsley. Uh, uh, Ophelia, he's not the caterer. He's the detective. Oh! Well, keep your eye on those pumpkins. Mice, you know. Mice? You know. Mice. Pumpkins? Where is that witch? I've got to tell her about the parsley. Oh, witch? Sad case, but harmless. Shall we go in? Yeah. Now, uh, watch his jawbone, Wilma. Oh, you've already broken his neck. Oh, why don't you hire an assistant? I don't like hanging him in the house anyway. We we don't even know who he is. What are they up to now? Halloween comes but once a year. Oh, it's a skeleton, part of the decoration. Uh, Hillary. Oh, yes, Omar. I couldn't find the witch, but here's the detective. Oh, well, you can have the witch. I'll take him. Oh, watch what you're doing, Wilma. The ladder. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this just about completes the arrangements. Oh, this is Miss Wilma Fairley, for whom I'm managing this nauseous ball, uh, Sam Spade. Hillary, is that any way to speak about a girl's fifth engagement party? Uh, forgive me if I'm guilty of understatement. Oh, fix that wire, Wilma. The top of Frankenstein's head's caving in. And look at that. The bolts are coming out of his neck already. Oh, well, come along, Spade. And I'll tell you how you fit into this mess. See you at the party, Sam. Oh, in here, Spade. Privacy. I uh, don't think we're quite alone, are uh, we? 99%. This is fairly fiancé number five. Ralph Cram by name. Oh, wake up, Ralph. Oh, uh, don't bother. He uh, started the party a little early? Mm, before lunch. But can you blame him? <laughs> if I weren't a teetotaler, I'd be out staggering around the woods with, with that witch. Uh-huh. Now, uh, what exactly is my assignment, Mr. Bright? I want you to be present at this miserable party tonight and pretend to have a good time. Why didn't you hire an actor? <clears throat> this is a new kind of masquerade ball. Even I have a unique problem here. A Halloween party combined with a party announcing the engagement of a socially prominent young woman. <laughs> well, naturally, the press will be on hand. They always are at my parties. But I doubt if any of the invited guests will show up. That's where you come in. You are one of the uninvited guests. I don't get it. But it's very simply this. I have a reputation to maintain. I'm sure you have better things to do than read the society page, so like, I'll explain. I believe some ill-informed columnists have referred to me as the male Elsa Maxwell. That's not true. She is the male Hillary Bright. A uh, female, that is. Uh, anyway, you're a professional party giver, is that it? Uh, exactly. What's the matter with Wilma? 
Why won't anybody come to her party? Because everyone on the guest list is either a relative or a friend of some poor swain she has jilted on the very steps of the altar. Oh, now I get it. Exactly. Now, as to the party. Masquerade. Natch. What else can you have on Halloween? Figures. Yes. If anyone came, they'd probably be dressed as witches or pumpkins, mm. which is dull enough in itself. So. But the fairies and their immediate circle will undoubtedly trot out their moth-eaten Beaux-Arts costume. Old Langdon as Louis the Fourteenth. Wilma and her mother trying to look like Greek goddesses and some old drapes from a Fanchon and Marco idea. What about the boyfriend here? Well, you can see how hideous it's all going to be. And Life magazine has promised to cover it. Well, I simply had to do something. Now, what about the boyfriend? I think it's the party idea of the year. Twenty uninvited guests who will come as themselves. Uh, who's my date, the witch? Oh, isn't she priceless? <laughs> you know, I thought of burning her at the stake as the grand climax of the evening. I've got matches. No, I decided against it. It's too messy. Well, it sounds like loads of fun, Mr. Bright, but I'm afraid you called the wrong detective. Now, Go wait out. a minute, please. Hear me out. Now, there's method in my madness. I believe I mentioned 20 uninvited guests. Who were coming as themselves, yes. Exactly. Well, I've gone to a great deal of trouble and expense getting together a really colorful group. All authentic types. A gangster, a shrimp fisherman, a swami, three bubble dancers, three. a gypsy, hmm, a paroled axe murderer, a sand hog. Oh, that reminds me, I must see whether the blubber arrived for that Eskimo they're flying down from Nome. Yeah, well... well what uh... I'm getting at, Spade, is that with a collection of people like that, well... Anything might happen. Yeah, yeah, well, why didn't you invite the uh, local police force? Oh, they're coming in costume, of course. Good, then you won't need me. Besides, I get $800 a day in expenses. Mr. Spade, at the last party our local chief of police attended, the guests were held up and robbed at $50,000 worth of jewels, including the chief's gold badge. So, you see, we do need you. I don't think anything of this kind had been done because we had a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff, and we... I used to do a little ad-libbing now and then if I felt like it, and... <laughs> It was kind of fun. Kathy Lewis and June Havoc did most of the uh, leading ladies. Well, he was romancing her at that time. Uh, did that show up in his choice of roles and everything like that? It was very, a very touching I don't story. Know. I think maybe they weren't married when she first no, came No, they weren't. The he was they courting were... her, and that oh, was really? his way of uh, making an impression upon her. He was a <laughs> caster in all these various roles. Unbilled most of the time, by the way. Oh, no. Yeah, I guess so. No, I was the only guy that got Yeah, you got the star billing. And and I had to uh, fight like mad for that, believe me. That's another, a whole other story. <laughs> we won't go into that. very important announcement to make. Ophelia? She was here just a few moments ago. Well, have you seen her around Langdon? A few minutes ago. She said she had a headache and went upstairs to get some aspirin. Sam, I'm worried about Mother. Would you mind going upstairs to see what she's up to? She's been behaving so strangely tonight. She's been behaving strangely. Uh, sure, uh, Wilma, I'll be right well, back. come along. Let's get on with it. A witch. Urgent! You, you stand over here. Here? No, no, no. Bring your broom. <laughs> That's it. And don't look so pleasant. You're supposed to be evil. <laughs> Beware. Those not wearing toad bane is subject to warts. There's evil in this place tonight. Blood on the stone. Blood in the cauldron. I hated to miss the manifestation, and I hoped I'd get back in time for the scream of the soul in torment the witch had promised earlier in the evening. I cased the rooms in the second floor. Wilma's fiancé, Ralph Cram, was in one of them asleep. Ophelia wasn't in any of them. But in one of the bedrooms, I found something that puzzled me. A rope made out of bed sheets dangled out of the window, but the window was closed. I walked over and opened it. The witch was still at it. 
I couldn't see the merry little group around the bonfire, but where the firelight glowed against the tree trunks at the edge of the woods, I saw a white-robed figure crouching in the shadows. Then I heard it. at the foot of a big pine tree at the edge of the clearing. A single slug had entered the body just below her left shoulder blade. If this was part of Mr. Bright's Halloween production, I thought he'd overdone it just a little because she was dead. As nearly as I could reconstruct it, Wilma had been standing outside the circle of people grouped around the fire as if somebody in the woods had called to her and she'd left the group to investigate. She'd been facing the fire when she was shot. Then what about the two shots that had missed her? the killer had been aiming at her and missed, he couldn't have avoided hitting somebody else in the crowd. I went back to the house to check the guests. All there, unwounded and accounted for, except the witch. According to the local chief of police, it was rapidly turning into a toad. She had flown away on a broom. I checked my nose for warts. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Actors loved working for Spear. And for him, Sam Spade was a welcome change of pace. With suspense, when you know suspense was in its great era, which was roughly 1945 or 46 up through about 1953, was when they were attracting major Hollywood stars to that show. The Hollywood stars would come in and they would be very nervous with Bill Spear because not only, from what I've heard, he, he didn't encourage uh, a lot of rehearsing and wouldn't even allow it because he wanted them to be spontaneous and fresh on the air. Well, he certainly had that with the cast of Sam Spade, but they were pros, the best pros you could find. And most of them worked for scale, which was under $100 in those days, but they did it for love as much as anything else. That October, Spade's rating was 156 it climbed to 18.4 in December, but fell rapidly during the new year. Television was becoming a factor, and so was right-leaning political pressure. In 1949, Dashiell Hammett's name came before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Wildroot was by then uneasy, and moved with the entire production to NBC in the fall. But nine months later, Variety reported that Wildroot would only continue if Hammett's name was removed from the credits. Then. In June of 1950, Howard Duff was listed in the Red Channels, and the show's fate was sealed. It was canceled in September. It went six years and was one of the victims of the assassination of radio, plus complicating factors in the unjust, completely unjust, polarizing of Dashiell Hammett, who had been thought to have been with communist leadings, which he was not, so far as I know, and so the show was disappeared. I was in Europe at the time. I had uh, We recorded in advance transcriptions. And I was in Europe. June and I were on a trip there. And I heard from Larry White that Sam Spade had been canceled. And I thought, well, isn't that w too bad that I suppose that Philip Morris or whoever it was ran out of the budget changed or something, but it'll be sold in an hour because it was a very successful show, always in the first ten. And two weeks, three weeks went by, and there was still nobody, uh, no takers. And I didn't find out until I got back 
to this country, that there had been those complications. And by the time they were able to be cleared out at all, radio was, was mm. disappearing to the east. Radio audiences wrote 250,000 letters in protest. In November, NBC revived the series with Stephen Dunn in the lead. No sponsor signed on, and the adventures of Sam Spade departed the airways on April 27, 1951. One of the minor ones, uh, at least I think it was minor, was the rumor that Howard Duff. Howard Duff had been listed in some book against all this. And actually all Howard ever did, if he did that, was to go to a lunch being held in honor of somebody who was out of work because he was on the Hollywood blacklist, some screenwriter or somebody. Mm -hmm. Quite possible Howard didn't even know the man, and uh, I'm sure he's as far from being of that political ilk as he could be. But And of course we talked about Dashiell Hammett, who created the character of Sam Spade, but actually had nothing to do with the radio series except that for the first few years, we mentioned his name in connection with originating the character. And I, I don't know if that was a legal demand of Warner Brothers at the time. They made certain demands of Bill Spear. Certain credits had to be given in connection with using the, the character. They did wonderful things in those <laughs> days, and not all the stories are apocryphal. They're true. Uh, they, the craziest are true. They undressed Bill Stern once, you know that? Oh, story. yes, I was there. Bill Stern was one of the great sports catchers of all times, and he was at NBC, I think, at yeah. the time, and somebody went out and, to a studio tour, and they, while he's on the mic, they yes. removed his trousers. Oh, yes. Two guns. Now, there's nothing he can do. He is on the air. That was so Frank he, Reddick. Did. They're yes. pulling his trousers yeah. down, and he's saying, in the meantime, the score in the That's Browns. Right. They pulled his trousers off. Now they go out into the hall. And there's a studio tour and say, by the way, you better drop by 8H. Stern's doing the sports. <laughs> and all these people walk by the window where he was sitting there in his shorts doing things. <laughs> Wonderful things like that. <laughs> Setting the script on fire was an old device, wasn't it? Too yes, long? and then we did, uh, we used to do a lot of shows in front of an audience, all dressed up in evening clothes. I never knew quite why. Give it a dramatic yes, yes, thing, you know, the Philip Morris hour and things like that. And uh, we had a very dramatic director called... Charles Martin, who used to give very dramatic cues and was, he was, you know, the Toscanini of the radio so the directors. Would be aware he's and there. he'd see him in his dinner jacket doing all of this. I used to repeatedly pretend to drop my script and lose my pages before it came to my time in order to spoil his act. You see, because I'd drop all the pages and we'd all be picking them up saying, oh, that isn't it, must be this and so on. Then while he was looking away, I'd get the real script out of my pocket, you see. That but, could be but, heart attack time. Yeah, heart attack time. But he gave us a rough time during rehearsals, so we felt he had it coming to us. But it was very funny sponsors in those days. Over and over again, radio actors would be barred forever, not allowed ever again to work on a show because it was a camel show and they opened up a package of Chesterfields or something. That's how seriously they took it at that, yes, at that time. Just the package in your hand, blackballed forever. There's in radio, a medium where nobody could see anything. I remember once when I was in radio in the Midwest, the favorite device there was for the, because we didn't have a news editing staff or anything, we would just, you know, pull it off the teletype and the AP or UP would come in on the yellow sheets of paper and the radio announcer, Ed knows this, would tear it off and you go into the news and you read what the stories are. They would type in, they would get a, a sheet and in the middle of the news they would type in some horrendous 
obscene story <laughs> that you didn't know the end of it until yeah. you were about halfway through, and then, of course, your eyes would drop down, and you'd say in um, oh. Cedar Rapids' Iowa today, Mr. William Scranton went into the barn, and all of a sudden you'd see what's coming. <laughs> And you say, we'll be back to that story in a moment, but first, I mean, <laughs> terrible things like oh, that. Yes. But you would be halfway through the story before you realized you'd been had. You have been listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of Jane Eyre, starring Orson Welles and Madeline Carroll. Mr. Welles and our guest will be back with us in just a moment. Meanwhile... You may have noticed earlier in our program that in speaking of Campbell's chicken soup, I referred to it as homey. Now, that's exactly what it is, old-fashioned and homey. We had an announcer. I had for years, I had a show for Campbell's Soup, which was called the Campbell Playhouse, and we had an announcer called Chapel. Ernest Chapel. Ernest Chapel had a very earnest and dramatic voice, and he used to rehearse his commercials very seriously, and he had, there was a running line for a year, which was as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Now, I had been sent by somebody <laughs> the reading a copy of the Poulterer's Gazette, in which Campbell's soup was advertising for old roosters. Now, as a matter of fact, roosters make the best soup and very old chickens, but we didn't know that. We thought it was funny. So I had my cast every week in dress rehearsal while Chapel was saying, you like Campbell's chicken soup, we were saying rooster soup right along with him. And he would say, now, fellows, you know I'm going to go on the air and I'm going to say rooster. <laughs> He did. He did. <laughs> I really believe it is. And so I say again, just as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Have it tomorrow, won't you? In 1934, with Chicago the Center for Radio Production, NBC writer and director Willis Cooper created a program for NBC's affiliate WENR that drastically altered the tone of horror. Cooper had been writing advertising copy in the late 1920s when he entered radio. He worked first as a continuity editor, and then for NBC's Empire Builders. His idea was to offer listeners a late-night terror program at a time when other stations were mostly airing music. It emphasized crime thrillers and the supernatural. The first series of shows, each 15 minutes long, ran on Wednesdays at midnight, and it was called Lights Out. In April, the series expanded to a half hour. The following year, it went national. Cooper stayed on until 1936, when he left to write film scripts in Los Angeles. He wrote The Phantom Creeps and The Son of Frankenstein before returning for the final season of The Campbell Playhouse on CBS and the Army Hour on NBC. Then, in the spring of 1947, a new opportunity arose in New York. Quiet Please debuted on Sunday, June 8, 1947 at 3.30 p.m. over the Mutual Broadcasting System. Quiet Please. Quiet Please.
Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Don't Tell Me About Halloween. Uh, I'm going to kill my wife tonight, or maybe tomorrow night. I mean, I'm going to kill one of my wives. I better if something's going to happen to me that won't be good. Well, Halloween's almost here. Halloween's the deadline. And Candace has to be dead before Halloween. Only trouble is, I'm not sure I'll recognize her when she shows up. You ever been in Salem, Massachusetts? Place where they hanged all the witches? No, they didn't burn them at the stake. A lot of people think so, but they didn't. They hanged them. All except the man witch, old Giles Corey, they pressed him to death. Very unpleasant. Well, it was in Salem this particular Halloween that I met Candace. It was dark up there on the hill where the gallows used to stand. Dark and cold with a damp wind coming in off the sea. A few little lights you could see in the dusk only made it darker and lonelier and creepier up there. I remember how I shivered as I started down the hill to town. And I remember how I jumped when something that looked like a black cat jumped out of the shadows at my feet. Without thinking, I yelled, Who's that? My heart almost stopped beating because... Well, good evening. I'd been all alone up there. And then, all of a sudden, there was a woman standing beside me. You're the first human being that's spoken to me tonight. Who are you? I'm Candace. I... I don't know any Candace. You didn't. But you do now. You nearly scared me to death. Oh, I wouldn't do that to you. What's your name? Craig. You like me, Craig? What? Well, I don't know what you look like. I like you very much. Well, but I... Kiss me, Craig. Now... Kiss me, I said. You know... You're going to be a very nice husband for me, Craig. What do you mean? I'm not going to... Oh, yes, you are. When I say something's going to happen, it happens, Craig. But I... I'm not... Wouldn't you like to be rich, Craig, and have a beautiful wife? I am beautiful. You'll see. Wouldn't you like to be rich and wise and happy and live forever? Wouldn't you, Craig? Who the devil are you? <laughs> Why, that's a very apt way of putting it, Craig. Who are you? I'm Candace. That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm the witch they didn't hang, Craig. Well, she was right. I am rich. Whenever I need money, which hasn't been for a long time now, I... Ask Candace when she comes to see me at Halloween time. I am reasonably wise, I suppose. I'm quite an authority on American history, quite well considered at the university here. And while I can't say I've lived forever, I have lived 253 years. Now, that's right. You see, I met Candace on the hill above Salem in the year 1694, two years after Cotton Mathis stopped hanging witches. Yes, 
Candace has kept her promise. I remember the way she put it, standing up there in the early morning, watching the mists crawling along the ground below us. You'll not see me now till another Halloween. And I can't tell you what form I'll be in when I come to see you again. But if you see a strange bird or a lost dog, or any strange being at your door come Halloween, you say, who's that? And if it so happens the stranger's me, why then, I'll be home with you till the cock crows for morning. And I remember I started to speak, to ask questions, but she stopped me. For the time's short now, my love. And remember the words. And we've all the future before us. As long as I live, you shall live. And below us somewhere, a rooster crowed. And I was standing alone on the hill. And a yellow butterfly was rising in circles above my head. I watched it disappear into the first rays of the sun. Quiet Please elevated the genre into a high art. No, I didn't believe it either. And yet, we for the were weekly lead, Cooper selected Ernest Chapel, the Campbell Playhouse's announcer. Chapel proved a natural. He played Scotsmen, oil riggers, drunks, and archaeologists. They were every man who got tied up in the supernatural. Few supporting voices could be afforded or deployed. Those who were were part of the New York radio elite like Frank and Claudia Morgan. The cast was told, play it straight, and it resulted in an almost dreamlike study in horrific high art. Like on October 27, 1947, when Quiet Please presented, Don't Tell Me About Halloween. was I to know? Give me that quilt! Oh. oh, she was all contriteness and apologies in a moment. But I can feel that slap alongside my chops from two and a half centuries ago. And our first anniversary was a very pleasant one. I was rather glad I'd married a witch. It had its drawbacks, though, despite wealth and growing wisdom. People around me in Salem grew old, and I seemed to stay the same age. I moved away, and the years went on. I moved away from Salem, and I moved away from Philadelphia, and I moved from Baltimore, and Richmond, and Savannah, and a score of other places. I spoke to George Washington, and I watched Robert Fulton's steamboat chug up the Hudson when I was more than a hundred years old, and looked 35. And every Halloween, I welcomed Candace home for a night. One year, in a farmhouse on an Illinois prairie, a red fox whined up my door. And it was Candace. One year, a blue jay flew down from a tree in Missouri. And another year, she came as a skittering little gray field mouse. And the year I came back to Wisconsin after the Civil War, a porcupine gnawed its way into my cabin on Halloween night. And one of its quills spiked me before I thought to say, who's that? And when Candace smiled at me, there was only a strand of yellow hair through the thick of my thumb. I remember she pulled it out. And it hurt. Years and years and years. 
Yeah, she's been a wonderful wife, but I never forget what she is. Once a year is getting to be enough. It was just... In March of 1948, CBS executive Davidson Taylor sent an internal memorandum expressing his interest in purchasing the Mutual Sustained Series for CBS. Nothing materialized. Quiet Please shifted to ABC in September of 1948, but never found sponsorship and went off the air on June 25th, 1949. I didn't know it was you. Well? Huh? Don't people kiss their wives anymore? Darling, you, well, you surprised me. Suppose you surprised me. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. And that's Crime on the Waterfront with Mike Wallace starring as Police Detective Lieutenant Lou Cagle of the New York Police Department. And this is a broadcast from February 24th of 1949. Joining us at our studio here in the Museum of Broadcast Communications is our very special guest this afternoon, Mr. Mike Wallace. Thank you, Chuck. You have a lot of fans in the Chicago area, Mike. Oh, well, listen, this is where I grew up professionally, so that I have a special feeling about this town. I went to college in Ann Arbor mm -hmm. and got a job. Luckily, I couldn't get a couple of jobs for which I had auditioned, and I got a job at WOOD in Grand Rapids back in 1939, and then came to Detroit to WXYZ, and finally here to Chicago in 1941. Did you, was your first job, job here in Chicago as a staff announcer on no, home stations? No, I was freelance. Mm -hmm. I announced a soap opera called Road of Life, the story mm -hmm. of Dr. Jim Brent. And <laughs> Dr. Then Brent calls surgery, right? That, that's exactly <laughs> the one. And shortly after that, got a job uh, doing the air edition of the Chicago Sun-Times before it was the Sun. Mm -hmm. Those were the days when you could do news and commercials and narration and acting and everything. No one thought the worst of before it was all honest work. And the extraordinary thing for somebody breaking into the business back then was that it gave you an opportunity to do a variety of chores, and you began to learn what it was that you could do and, and what you couldn't do. And that Lou Cagle, mm. how long did that stay on the air? Not too long. <laughs> <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> 
from Chicago, the Coca-Cola Company presents Spotlight Review. Starring Spike Jones and the City Slickers, Dorothy Shea, the Park Avenue Hillbilly, and their special guest, the Steinway Sinatra, Jan August. Now here's Spike in the City Slickers saying we don't care what you call it, but it means hi there, neighbor, welcome to you, and it may sound like no, no, Nora. On Friday, October 3rd, 1947, at 10.30 p.m., Spike Jones and his City Slickers debuted a new program on CBS. The zany band leader was 35 and looking for a change. It was the third time he'd been given his own series. Jones had spent 13 weeks as a summer replacement on NBC for Edgar Bergen in 1945, and he emceed Spikes at the Troc over mutual Don Lee in the spring of 1946. In the summer of 1947, Jones hired Ralph Wonders, former VP of the General Artists Corporation, as his manager. And when Coca-Cola decided to get back into radio, CBS sold the soda giant the Spike Jones Spotlight Review. It featured the city slickers, Dorothy Shea and Morton Downey Sr. The city slickers took hot jazz and added bells, whistles, washboards, flip guns, pop bottles, and doorbells. The result was one of the most interesting musical sounds in radio history. Thanks, everybody, and hi there, friends. This is Spike Jones wishing you all a happy Halloween and inviting you to come on in and bob for apples. Heist your heels and take a ride with us on our special broom built for two. Hey, move over, Spike. That's our girlfriend, Goldilocks of the Gold Coast, the Park Avenue hillbilly, Dorothy Shea. Spike, don't you just love Halloween? Yes, Shazy, I sure do. This is the night the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. Goblins? I don't think I know them, but gee, there's one fellow I'm sure lighting a pumpkin for tonight. Anybody I know, Dorothy? No, I don't think so, Spike. He's a very shy, sensitive type of fellow. Well, I'm kind of shy myself, Shay. Well, I know, Spike, but you wear shoes. Oh, you got a real old-fashioned two-jug mountain man, huh? Well, Spike, he's just a big, gentle boy. And if I sit real quiet here tonight, he may come stealing through the dew. And before you know it, we'll be sparking. What are you going to say to him, Dorothy? I'll tell you, Spike. We had a little argument last Halloween, and he went away mad. But if he comes back, here's what I'll say to him. Life used to be a gay thing. Filled with happiness. The band continued to tour around the country. When the show was broadcast from Chicago... Mike Wallace handled the program. He was then a freelance announcer and soon became one of the most famous interviewers of the 20th century. I freelanced exclusively here in Chicago for the, I was here for a decade with two, two and a half years out, maybe. And uh, I worked GN and Q and BBN, mostly those three. And it just kept you so busy because there was so much activity here in town. Did you ever get caught by the bridge being up? Only on one or two occasions, but I did. <laughs> but you <Yeah>. did. <laughs> and didn't, actually what happened was I didn't make the repeat at CBS. Mm. I was coming across and didn't make the repeat of Road of Life. And I thought I was going to lose my job as a result of it, but they understood. That was a standard problem or excuse, I think. A little of each. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> 
When Spike made his way to the West Coast, it was Dick Joy who sometimes filled in. He had a series for Coca-Cola on CBS in 1948-49, which I announced for a while when he was in Los Angeles. He originated on the road a great deal. Spike was very public service-minded, as most of the good people were in those days. Uh, and Spike was uh, a fun guy to be around, and some of the people with him were, of course, it was Doodles Weaver and all those cats. And his show each week had a guest star. Anything could happen on that, including the time he threw a lemon meringue pie at Charles Boyer in the closing scene. That was always for benefit of the studio audience. Instead of hitting Boyer, he got me, and I only had <laughs> This was all premeditated, though, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You were mentioning Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie was a guest star on one of the shows I worked. And uh, Paul Fries, who was voice you here on many television things now, could imitate anybody. He's the number one imitator of Orson Welles. He could do a beautiful imitation of Peter Laurie. So as the show was on the air, the secretary came out and gave us all inserts for the closing thank you and goodbye scene, in which uh, Spike would say, well, it's been a... Great pleasure to have Peter Laurie with us today. And Peter, uh, we want to thank you. And uh, what picture? We always had to credit the picture, of course. What, what motion picture are you appearing in this week and all that? So uh, the girl came out and gave us all the, the new uh, pages for the last bit. Peter Laurie is sitting there, and Spike started to read this. And Peter stood up to walk over to the microphone. And coming from the wings opposite him is Paul Fries, who plays Peter Laurie, the like of which you've never heard. And Laurie did not expect this, and so, so he froze and stood still. Paul Fries walks up to the microphone, and Spike says, Peter, it's been marvelous to have you with us. And Paul Fries says, you have certainly been my pleasure. You don't know how I've enjoyed it myself. And Laurie is just about dying, and the show goes off the air, and he was still bewildered. And Spike went over and hugged him and said, dude, and I don't think Peter thought it was. <laughs> In 1947, Halloween fell on a Friday and the Spotlight Review was on the air. Have you noticed that familiar red cooler in more and more places lately? Its frosty interior bulging with refreshing Coca-Cola? Yes, these days you can find an ice-cold Coke not only at your favorite lunchroom soda fountain and refreshment stand... But in your service station and your food store, too. Since it's so easy to pause for a Coke, and the price is still five cents, why not ride refreshed and shop refreshed? Being Halloween, folks, we'd like to present ourselves at your door right now, dressed up like one of those ritzy, big, polite orchestras with a soup and fish arrangement of my old flame. It features Paul Judson and Paul Freeze. Look, folks, easy. No hands. My old flame I can't even think of a name but it's funny now and then How my thoughts go flashing back again To my old my This is your FBI. Friday night's highest-rated show ran at 8.30 p.m. on ABC, opposite The Thin Man on CBS and Can You Top This on NBC. The combined rating was 46 points. 
However, Friday evening radio listenership dropped significantly after It Pays to be Ignorant went off the air at 10.30. It was for many either a time to go out or a time to go to bed. 10.30 was when the Spotlight Review signed on. CBS would ship the series to Saturdays at 7 the following year. In fact, it was on Saturday, October 1st, 1948, that Frank Sinatra's private and professional turmoil became noticeable with an off-key spotlight review performance. How are you feeling tonight, Frank? Is your voice all right? Well, I think so. Let me see. <laughs> I am majestically in voice. You ready? Everybody loves somebody sometimes Everybody falls in love somehow Something in your kiss just told Dorothy Shea departed at the end of 1948. The show moved to Sundays at 6.30 as the Spike Jones show. It was now the lead-in for the newly migrated Jack Benny program. The show managed a 10.6 rating. But when ratings fell to a 9.7 the following month, CBS moved the series back to Saturday nights. Your love made it well. By June, its rating was down to 5.9. CBS canceled the Spike Jones show on June 25, 1949. of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and 924 leading retail stores from coast to coast present the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is portrayed by John Stanley, Dr. Watson by Alfred Shirley. Our stories are based upon the character of Sherlock Holmes, Created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The dramatizations are by Edith Miser. And now, once again, we turn into the familiar gate. The wind whistles cold and sharp through empty branches. A brilliant October moon peers intermittently from behind scudding clouds. Hello, what's that in the good doctor's window? Pumpkin lantern. Dr. Watson is celebrating Halloween early this year. Come in, Mr. Harris, come in. Why the delay on the doorstep? Why, I was just admiring your Halloween decorations, Dr. Watson. <laughs> A work of art, eh? Presented to me this afternoon by my youngest godchild. 
It's supposed to ward off goblins and witches and other nefarious familiars who are abroad this time of year. <laughs> you mean who are supposed to be abroad, Doctor? Well, not necessarily, Mr. Harris. Not necessarily. Well, here, take this chair by the fire. Thank you. Did I ever tell you of the time Holmes and I had a rather terrifying encounter with the notorious laughing lemur of Hightower Heath? Why, you know you didn't, Doctor. Who was she? A witch who had been buried centuries before on wild and brooding countryside known as Dartmoor. This adventure took place on All Saints' Eve, the particular witch's Sabbath, which you Americans refer to as Halloween. And uh, <laughs> there I go off the deep end as usual. Suppose I pause to pour us each a glass of fresh cider, hmm? while you pay homage to our sponsor. What could be fair, Dr. Watson? To tell you that Clippercraft suits sell for only 35 and $40 with a few special models at 4375. Sherlock Holmes peaked on radio between 1939 and 46 with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce playing Holmes and Watson. They made 14 films during the time and their rating climbed to 14.1 in 1942 on NBC. The next year, the entire cast moved to the mutual broadcasting system. They remained for three seasons until Holmes left for ABC. Basil Rathbone stayed with Mutual to star in a new series called Scotland Yard. Nigel Bruce stayed on as Watson, while Tom Conway became Holmes. But when the Semler Company discontinued sponsorship in the spring of 1947, ABC canceled the show. That summer, Clippercraft Clothing signed on to pay the bills. The show moved back to Mutual with John Stanley as Holmes and Alfred Shirley as Watson. The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes signed on the air Saturdays at 7 p.m. On October 26th, Holmes and Watson tackled the case of the Laughing Lemur. And now, Dr. Watson, to return to the Witch on the Moors. Oh, right. It was uh, one morning several years after my marriage, a brilliant fall day. The last day of October, to be exact. Mary and I had just finished our matutinal Finn and Harry when a violent jangle at the front door bell heralded a telegram from my erstwhile partner in crime, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. As nearly as I can remember, it ran, uh, if convenient, meet me Paddington Station, 10.15. If inconvenient, come anyway. Bring service revolver. Don't suppose you have any silver bullets? Silver bullets? What was the meaning of that inquiry, Doctor? <laughs> as a matter of fact, that was my first question after Holmes had settled himself in the corner of our railway carriage. Holmes, I gather from your telegram that we're about to embark on another investigation. A dangerous one, judging from the fact that you wish me to bring my revolver. But why the facetious inquiry as to the silver bullets? Because it's a common superstition among the natives of the moors of Devonshire that the evil spirits who are bound there can only be killed by a silver bullet. Who's interested in native superstitions? We are, Watson. We've been urgently summoned by Sir Lionel Fenwick of Fenwick Hall. Because a long-dead ancestress of his is supposed to be on the prowl. It seems she's not only playing all sorts of outrageous pranks, but actually threatening the safety of his infant son born only two weeks ago. In other words, Watson, we're not on the trail of a common criminal. This is a witch hunt. Pressing, eh, Watson, the first glimpse of the moor? Yes. We shall be there shortly. Uh, notice that ancient Roman tower. 
She's buried at the crossroads at the foot of that hill. It's from that building that she derives her name. Who derives what name? The Laughing Lemur of Hightower Hill. A lemur is the Roman word for ghost or spirit of the dead. But she was a witch besides. That's why she was buried at the crossroads. She would have been burned, of course, and her ashes scattered to the four winds, except that she was a great lady and married to the head of the house of Fenwick, whose given name was Hugo. Hugo was an old boy in his 60s when he married her. Much to the annoyance of his brother Edgar, he imported a lusty, fun-loving young French noblewoman, a Louise de Lombal, whose mother was the notorious Madame de Montespan. Madame de Montespan? Well, wasn't she a, a sort of minor borger? Yes, Watson. At any rate, Louise seemed young and gay and exceptionally healthy and active. Too athletic, perhaps, for her ancient bridegroom, because she insisted he accompany her when she rode to hounds. But in due course of time, he was found, his neck broken, on the far side of a particularly high wall, which his wife, shrieking with laughter, had jumped a few moments before. Even after Hugo's death, Louise rode by day and danced by night, and day or night she continued to laugh. Death bad taste, if you ask me. Quite. At first, her brother-in-law, Edgar, seems to have been fairly tolerant of the situation, since he now believed himself lord of the manor. But one day, three weeks after her husband's death, Louise came to him and informed him that she was going to have a child. The dead Hugo was to have an heir. She relayed the information with gales of laughter. Uh, poor Edgar. The joke was certainly on him. Oh, no. He started rumors about his brother's widow. The French perfumes she used were love potions. She and twelve companions she brought with her from France had formed a coven. A coven? In the old days when witchcraft was in flower, Watson, witches and their familiars banded together in unholy groups of thirteen, which were called covens. Oh. Lastly, Edgar claimed that no mortal had fathered the child, that it was the offspring of the devil himself. In proof of this contention, he pointed out cloven hoof prints under Louise's window. In short, the unfortunate lady was tried as a witch, and uh, English justice being, shall we say, uh, slightly biased in those days, she was sentenced to be hanged by the neck until dead. Dashed unfair, if you ask me. After which she was buried at the crossroads beneath the Roman tower, with a stake through her heart and a great stone over the grave to make sure she didn't return from it. Oh, lot of primitive nonsense. I wonder. At any rate, during the last fortnight, some person or persons seemed to have moved that stone and some rather curious, not to say frightening, phenomena have occurred. And the present house of the head of the House of Fenwick seems to feel the safety of his firstborn is threatened and that this danger should reach its peak tonight, which is All Hallows' Eve. Yes, here we are. This is our station. And that uh, gentleman waiting over there beside the wagonette with a pair of handsome cobs is undoubtedly Sir Lionel, the present master of Fenwick Hall. Keep the rug tucked over your knees, gentlemen. It's a longish drive to the hall, and the wind across the moors has turned uncommon cold. Thank you, Sir Lionel. I'll admit, Mr. Holmes, I was greatly relieved when I received your telegram saying I could expect you. Oh? Have there been any further disturbances since you posted your letter to me? There have, Mr. Holmes. The church bell has tolled at odd hours, last night and the night before. Furthermore, a young goat was discovered, dragged to the foot of the witch's grave, its throat all torn and bleeding. Of course, it could have been killed by a wolf or some ferocious dog, but... Unpleasant occurrences, Sir Lionel, but as you say, not necessarily supernatural. That's what I keep telling my wife and that stupid old nurse of hers. But I must say, when old Willie was found to be missing this morning, I really began to worry. Old Willie? He's the gatekeeper, Mr. Holmes. Lives in the little stone lodge beside the entrance to our property. 
He's tended that gate for over 50 years. Never leaves it night or day. Uh, except to come up to the hall for the Christmas party and my birthday. Well, maybe the monotony finally got the best of him, eh, Holmes? And uh, he decided to wander off. He couldn't wander very far, Dr. Watson. Old Willie is a cripple. He managed to hobble a few feet with the aid of his crutch. But, but uh, that's the curious part of the story. Willie was missing, but his crutch was there where he left it every night, propped up against the foot of his bed. By Jove. Was there anything else missing? Any clothing, overcoat, shoes, money, provisions of any sort? No, Mr. Holmes. Wherever Willie went, he went in his nightshirt. Not even his carpet slippers are gone. Nothing was missing? Nothing at all? As a matter of fact, one object has disappeared with him. The old broom with which Willie swept the leaves away from the gates. Old Nanny, my wife's nurse, set up a typical Irish wailing when she heard about it. Insisted old Willie had ridden off on it to join the witch's Sabbath tonight. She always hated him because he makes her get out of the cart and open the gates herself when she goes marketing for my oh, wife. Typical household feud, eh, Holmes? I tried to reason with the ignorant old fool, but she kept moaning and groaning that she's always known Willie had the evil eye. She's managed to frighten my poor wife nearly to hysterics. Oh, my wife is Irish too, Mr. Holmes. Her name is Bridget, in fact. I must say they place more credence in these old wives' tales than we do here. Nanny says it's the curse of the House of Fenwick being visited upon us. The curse of the House of Fenwick? Yes, it, it, it seems a certain Lady Fenwick, born Louise de Lamballe. Oh, yes, Holmes has already told me about her. Hanged as a witch and buried at the foot of the Roman Tower. That's right. Well, it seems that when the hangman came to place the noose around her neck, uh, she turned to my, uh, well, great-great-something-or-other-grandfather, who had the bad judgment to be standing nearby... She turned to him and laughed. But my dear brother Edgar, a silken rope, que c'est charmant. <laughs> you think this is the end of Louise de Lamballe, but you're so very mistaken. You do not let me live to have my first child, and so I say, I will not let your first child live. No, not the first child of any of the great house of Fenwick. Louise shall come back from the grave. She shall come back and take them all. <laughs> Has she managed to live up to her threats, Sir Lionel? Certainly not all of the oldest children of our house have met an untimely death, but... Uh... A rather high percentage have been stillborn. Several have succumbed shortly after birth. The wind is rising. We're approaching High Tower Tor, Dr. Watson. The wind is always stronger here. How ghastly the Roman ruins look in the moonlight. When we reach the next bend in the road, we shall be opposite the witch's grave. I see. There's a curious strip of mist flying across the road. Easy, easy, baby. Easy, blue boy. What, what place has got in the horses? Something seems to have frightened them. What's that? There's something white over there in the bracken. Rain in the horses, Sir Lionel. Right. I think our investigation may begin here. Right. Come along, Watson. I'm a giant. I see that, that white thing. It's moving. It's crawling along the ground. Yes, it's a man. He's badly hurt. What's he doing all in white? It's a nightshirt, Watson. By Jove, it's old Willie, but he... His face is all black, so are his hands. Willie, what's that stuff you've got in your skin? It's the salve, the flying salve she gave me so I could fly here to Hightower Heath. We flew here, me and me broomstick, we flew all the way. Good Lord, he's out of his head, he's delirious. Yes, he's in a bad way. Take his pulse, Watson. 
Here you are, Willie. Take a swig out of my flask. Thank you, sir. I'm frozen cold. Been cold ever since I put on the salve. She said it's because we was flying so high. Who was she? What was her name? The witch, of course. What did she look like? Uh, that I couldn't rightly say. She was wearing a veil over her face and standing in the moonlight at the foot of me bed. I'd been asleep when she called to me. Wake up. Wake up, Willie Malloy. You? Who be? <laughs> Someone who can make you dance. Someone who can make you fly. You've always wanted to dance, haven't you, Willie? They're giving a dance tonight around my grave. Here, take this jar of ointment. Cover yourself well with it, Willie. Cover your old broomstick. It will make you fly. I'd like that. Free like a bird. I'd like to fly. Then rub on the ointment. I'll wait for you outside. We'll fly to the tower and dance together around my grave. <laughs> That season, the Holmes rating was only 9.9. I did like she told me, sir. I covered myself and me broom. And first thing I knew, I got lighter and lighter. Up and up I went, up in the clouds. And the next I knew, I was here on the heath, watching them dance, the little people. No incarnation cracked the top 100 programs on American radio ever again. Lots of times with an audience, something would happen up there that wasn't programmed, and you'd get them laughing and get some momentum going, and it was a big help. I guess I was on for craft about 10 years then, wasn't I? 36 to 4, that's quite a career. It was a pleasant career because craft was marvelous to work for. They never interfered in any way. Not that we gave them cause to interfere. In 1945, Bing Crosby decided that he wanted to pre-record his NBC Kraft Music Hall program. Although transcription had existed since the late 1920s, NBC and CBS forbade their use for primetime network shows. A captain in the signal corps had come back from Germany. He'd spent some time over there after the war, a year or two. And he brought back, I don't know whether he brought a prototype of a tape machine or whether he just brought back the knowledge of how to put one together. But anyhow, he built one and showed it to us, and it was practical, and it seemed to me we could get the same result as a live show, taping in front of an audience, and still have an opportunity to edit or delete or interpolate anything that we uh, wanted to do after the show was finished, although lots of times there was no necessity to uh, touch the show at all. 
And again, you could tape it any day you wanted. You could tape it two or three days in a row if you wanted. If it appeared that you were going to want three or four weeks off for a trip, it seemed to me an ideal thing. But the networks didn't want it, didn't like it. They felt it would break up the networks or something. And the trade papers uh, opposed it, the taping. Uh, I think I finally uh, got a little petulant about it. I'm adamant. I said, well, it's going to be that way or, uh, or get a new boy or something. One of the people closest to Bing was his orchestra leader, John Scott Trotter. NBC and CBS were uh, adamant that they were not going to, and they should have been, because the advent of tape was the beginning of the end of the network as it was. He got disenchanted with having to be at a certain point every week, and he became disenchanted with audiences, not with people, but with audiences of people who camped in the neighborhood of Sunset and Vine. There were certain people who had a horrible laugh. They exploited this because their friends would say, I heard you laugh on the Bing Crosby show. I heard you laugh on the Hope show, you know? Uh, you know. <laughs> NBC and Kraft refused to budge. Crosby walked out. In the fall of 1945, the Kraft Music Hall went back on the air with comic Frank Morgan, pianist Eddie Duchin, and the Charioteers. Bing's longtime announcer was Ken Carpenter. Of course, you know the reason he left NBC was because they wouldn't let him do the tapes, you see. Mm -hmm. He was really the one that broke that barrier because uh, his little firm was the man that hired Jack Mullen, the man who got the tape from, uh, liberated the tape, as uh -huh. they say, from Germany uh -huh. at the end of the war and bought the first tape machine over here we used. Bing, of course, properly so, being a singer, he wanted to do his, at least his musical numbers, so they would be perfect, and you don't have to worry about those when you got on the talking part of the show. NBC would not allow him to uh, do any tape or recordings of any kind on NBC, and he said, goodbye. Crosby declared his contract null and void. Kraft insisted they had options which ran until 1950. The sponsor took Bing and agency J. Walter Thompson to court. The walkout would last seven months. A settlement brought Crosby back for the final 13 weeks of the season. Radio's biggest show. In the midst of this, Walgreens drugstore sponsored a transcribed 45th anniversary special on CBS at 10 p.m. on June 18, 1946. And their bulging wallets making them easy prey for the parsimonious palm-itching Mr. Hope. And here, standing in the center of his lobby, with his upbeat schnoz twitching hungrily as he rings for bellhops and whistles at the girls, his old Scrooge himself, Bob Hope. The program was one of the network's first transcribed shows to be heard from coast to coast. It starred Bob Hope, with talents including the Andrews sisters, Frank Morgan, Harry Von Zell, Rochester, and Ginny Sims. Thank you very much. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob helping Walgreen Drugstore celebrate their 45th anniversary hope. It cost $62,000 to produce. That you get from Walgreen, and when you're celebrating your silver anniversary, you won't have a Lone Ranger inside your bean. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be working for the Walgreen people. I've patronized Walgreen. The Walgreen special was proof that transcription could be viable if the networks would allow it. With Bing finishing his craft obligation, he was now a free agent. The American Broadcasting Company quickly signed the star, announcing that they had no qualms with pre-recorded shows. They announced a to-be-titled musical program with a weekly budget of $35,000. Now, they just had to find a sponsor. 
1936, NBC's parent company, RCA, got the FCC to approve a radio manufacturer's engineering committee. They were looking for an industry standard for radio and oncoming TV sets. Rival manufacturers like Philco disowned the agreement. Philco had been manufacturing ornate radio cabinets and by 1933 was outselling RCA. They claimed the committee was stacked with RCA supporters to allow for patent monopolization. Ten years later in 1946, Philco became Bing Crosby's new sponsor on ABC. The transcribed Philco Radio Time premiered on October 16th. Bob Hope was Crosby's special guest. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day someone waits for me Ken Carpenter welcoming you to the world premiere of Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed in Hollywood with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, the charioteers, Lena Romai, Skitch Henderson, and starring Bing Crosby. Well, Bing, here we are on a brand new program with Philco. What kind of show are we going to have? Well, I figure on something effervescent, charming, gay, carefree, bright, sparkling, scintillating, ebullient. Uh, no dull spots, huh? Well, there may be a lull tonight. Bob Hope's coming over a little later, and this is a little late for him this time of the evening. But before Trowel Nose gets here, let's have some music, huh? Twenty-four million people tuned in making it that week's fourth-highest-rated show on the air. I got no mansion, I got Although no the ratings would fall and then rise back up into the mid-teens, the radio's Crosby touted sold out nationally. The first Philco programs were made on disc, and they involved a turnover of the disc, and they were dependent on the equipment in the stations. The human element came in. It was not really a disaster, but it was not good. The records were sent to regional headquarters and then went out from there. They were played in New York at the correct time, then they were played in the Midwest at the correct time, then they were played Mountain Time and uh, West Coast at the correct time. The quality on a big, one of those 16-inch transcriptions varies from the outside grooves to the inside. And the dealers who were radio dealers listened to it and they didn't like what they heard, you know? And many times there was a switchover and you'd come in after the introduction of the song or something like that, you know? I mean, terrible things like that. You say you actually used that machine that they yes, brought over? Yes, the same one. He recorded his stuff on German, that? German designations on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happened to that machine? Well, it's probably in a museum someplace. <laughs> an Ampex museum. Yeah. I think the format of the Philco show was a good deal like the craft show, but I don't think we used as many legitimate artists as we did on the craft show, as many uh, people from the opera or from the concert field. It, Bing is a rather private person, and while he, in the early days, he leveled on a love song, as he matured, he held back a little bit. Now, with Halloween time upon us, we bring you Philco's Little Hobgoblin with eyes of blue and a pumpkin, too, 
Bing Crosby. <laughs> For Halloween in 1947, Bing's guests were Victor Moore and horror legend Boris Karloff. The fabulous introduction if I've ever heard one. My uh, brother Hebert will call on you in the morning. I'll be glad to hear I'll have you know I've been exercising and I've got rid of my little pumpkin. <laughs> no, no. No, you haven't really got rid of it, Bing. You just moved it around and back. Oh. <laughs> so that's where it is. I had an idea somebody was following me all day. <laughs> Part of my equipment, huh? Well. But getting back to Halloween, that's your great time of the year. Yes, it is. You know, Bing, I've carved a very funny face out of a pumpkin. So I noticed. Oh. Hey, Ken. <laughs> you remember when we were on craft? together and we had to carve our jack-o'-lanterns out of Velveeta. <laughs> what do you think Jolson and I have been doing all week? Carving, carving. Everyone's getting ready for Halloween. There's a lot of excitement buzzing over at the Crosby Chateau. Really? Oh, yes. Gary's carving a jack-o'-lantern and Lindsay's carving a jack-o'-lantern. The twins are carving each other. <laughs> Even the moose. You know, my moose is getting yeah. ready for the big boogie night. Yeah, he's going to a masquerade party. Oh, fine. What sort of a costume is your moose wearing? Well, I think he's putting rubber gloves on his antlers and he's going as Dr. Kildare. <laughs> It'll be a smash. And now if I can call on Dr. Trotter and the Rhythm Airs, I've had costumes. Oh, they're all smartly dressed tonight. Really turned out you look much better than the six hits than this. <laughs> now if I can call on Dr. Trotter and the Rhythm Airs, and we got them all standing by here just quivering at the leash, ready to leap into the Rhythm Rhythm. We'll head for the hill country. We're going to stir up a little feuding, fighting, and a fussing. Yes, sir. Well. <laughs> well. Al Dexter's with us. <laughs> Beyond the busy highway. Your lady. Beyond the city strife. Your lady. I thought Judy Canova was on Saturday night. <laughs> we highly treasure and take great pleasure in our pleasure of love. You make a minute. Student of fussing and of fighting. Even with the early issues, transcription was here to stay. By the end of 1947, the magnetic tape recorder had replaced cumbersome records. The two largest manufacturers were Ampex and 3M. Crosby helped fund their technological breakthroughs. He later obtained exclusive West Coast distribution rights from them. When other radio programs followed his lead, Bing Crosby made a significant profit. but Boris, I'm very unhappy with you. You haven't said one spooky thing all night. Vic's right, Boris. You've been pretty docile. Can't you get just a little sinister before you go? Well, I might invite all of you over to my house for the Halloween party. I'm going to serve a delicacy of my very own. What's that? Frozen blood on a stick. <laughs> oh, boy, plasma tickles. <laughs> hey, if it comes in burnt almond, I may join you, kids. <laughs> Say, Bing, who are your guests next week? Well, it'll be family night, Gail. The Nelsons are dropping in. Ozzie and Harriet. Ozzie says he's got something very important that he wants to talk to me about. I'll be sure to eavesdrop. By all means, do. And good night, Gail. Good night, Bing. Good night, Boris and Victor. Good night. Good night, Bing. Good night, folks. Okay. Transcribed in Hollywood by Bill Morrow and Myrtle McKenzie. Tune in to Philco Radio Time next week to hear Bing Crosby, Don Scott Trotter, and his orchestra, the Rhythm Airs, 
And brings guests Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. And don't forget, friends, this week the entire radio industry is celebrating National Radio Week. And now, stay tuned for Henry. Yes, it's the last-provoking Henry Morgan Show coming up next. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. WJZ New York, 10.30 p.m. by Ben Russ, official watch of National Airlines. The Buccaneer route. For guaranteed accuracy, choose a Ben Russ. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. A friend the other day said to me, and I want to pass it on to you, you know, they said, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet was far different than all other family-type shows. Lucy and Desi was totally unreal. Leave it to Beaver. Episode after episode showed kids being scolded for for things that all kids must experience if they are to grow up normal and well-adjusted. Polite kids being told by parents that they must ask permission first, then being told that time after time, no, can't do it. That is early frustration. The Nelson kids, David and Ricky, were free to make choices and take chances. Did you know, Harriet, that there are over 320,000 men in the National Guard today? No, I didn't. And did you know that every member of the Guard reports for training with his unit at least once a week and receives pay for it? No, I didn't. And that they now have an aviation branch called the Air National Guard? Did you know that dinner is ready and it's time to go to work with our 1847 Rogers Brothers silver plate? No, I didn't. And that America's finest silver plate is 1847 Rogers Brothers? That I did. In the fall of 1948, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet moved to Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. on NBC Radio. Although critically acclaimed, the couple had failed to crack the overall top 50 ratings on CBS in any of its first four seasons. The band leading Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard met in New York and were married in 1935. They began working comedic bits into their musical performances, eventually making their way to radio in 1941 when they joined the Red Skelton Show on NBC. I was born in Jersey City, and I was brought up in a little town called Ridgefield Park, which is in Bergen County. We moved there when I was five years old. In those days, most of the amateur performances were given in the form of minstrel shows, and uh, my father used to coach shows, local entertainment. There were a lot of vaudeville theaters in those days, and we would listen to the, the jokes that the, and the songs that the various acts would sing. And then we had records, Van and Skank and Al Jolson and people of that nature. When I was about 14 was when the ukulele craze came in. 
I was on the Boy Scout Jamboree to Europe and a kid sat on my ukulele. So when I got back home, uh, I conned my father into buying me a banjo and I strummed it up like a ukulele. And uh, we had a little band in high school and that's how I got into the music. The way the shadows fall could be a witch on a broomstick. Oh, it's spooky out tonight. In the Nelson kitchen, there's an atmosphere of feverish activity and excited preparations. What are you looking for, David? We're trying to find some paper bags, big ones. Well, look in the bottom drawer there. There, that's a good one, Ricky. Yeah, but what do I do with the potatoes? No, not that drawer, Ricky, on the other side. Hey, what's going on out here? We're getting some paper bags. After Skelton was drafted in 1944, CBS nabbed the couple, giving them their own sitcom. Ozzy led all aspects of production and was the show's pivotal character, with his tangents the vehicles for confusion. Each week, Harriet would gently guide him back to reason. Episodes usually ended with Ozzy suffering embarrassment, while his sons got in a few comedic jabs. How about you, Ricky? Would you like to be a painter? Will you get your white cap and stick a couple of brushes in your belt? Golly, Pa, those pants are pretty big. Oh, I don't know. Let's see how they look on you. Here, step into them. Put your foot in there. Yeah. Now the other foot. Now pull him up. Mm. Oh, that's a wonderful costume. The headless painter. <laughs> Anyhow, Pop, we don't need costumes. We got masks. That's enough. But how, how typical was your television family? Not that there is a typical American family. I'm not sure what that really means. But how typical was your television family, do you think? What did it represent, Harriet? I think it represented middle America. Ozzy came from a family in New Jersey. His dad was a banker. And uh, he came from that kind of a home. You know, he, he went to a public school, and then he went to Rutgers University. And, and it was... Mine was a little different. I came from that kind of a family, but my mother and dad were in show business, so I was born in the theater. And you started early. How old were you when you first went in front of people for money? Six weeks. Do you believe it? keeping in the spirit of Halloween. You should see what I did to Duck a little while ago. <laughs> did you scare him? What did you do? I sneaked up on his front porch, yeah. rang the doorbell, and ran like the Dickens. He didn't know what to think. <laughs> then when he went in the house, I went around to the back and started rattling the back door. <laughs> oh, boy, was he scared. <laughs> what else did you do, Bernie? Well, I waited a few minutes, and yeah. I tapped on the window and moaned like this. <laughs> and I, I rattled the door again, and I moaned some more, and I began pounding on the side of the house. Yeah. And then what? Then the police came. <laughs> Both Ozzy and Harriet felt their children, David and Ricky, were too young to play themselves. They took my soap away, too. And there were financial implications in big-time network radio. During the first four seasons, child actors Tommy Bernard and Henry Blair played the Nelson children. Rick and David, what about you growing up? How would you describe your growing up? There you were, you know, you were stars the whole time you were growing up for like, what, 16 years. That's amazing. How would you describe your childhood? 
Oh, I think it was fairly normal. I mean, to us, it was normal because it was the only child that we knew, really. But yeah. we always went to uh, public schools all the way along right. and had friends outside of show business. So I think we could kind of balance everything off, really. Well, your dad being the producer-director had control of the show, and I think it probably would have been different or a little strange had we been child actors, quote, he arranged the shooting schedule so we could have football practice and whatever we were doing. So it wasn't it was like control. you missed something to become stars or something like that. It, it, it would have been tough if we, if we were growing up in Nebraska and had a television show there. But being in Hollywood, so many of the kids are either involved with the show business families or their parents are behind the scenes. And it was fairly normal. anybody's ever said about me. You mean we thought it was you trying to scare us? Oh, boys, don't be silly. You guys probably saw the moon shining through the window, and your imagination did the rest. Okay, go up and see for yourself. Yeah, why don't you, Pop? Yeah, why don't you, Pop? Well, I'd be glad to, except I take your mother to the movies. Since when? <laughs> well, that is, I, I've been thinking about it all day. There's a wonderful triple Halloween show at the Bijou. The son of Frankenstein... Dracula's daughter, and a date with Judy. I wasn't counting on the movies, dear. In fact, I'd much rather you'd go up and give us a report on the ghost. Oh, it's so silly. Go ahead, Pop. Have some fun. Go ahead, oh, dear. Well, okay. If it makes you happy, I'll go up and visit the haunted house. Boy, Pop. I thought for a minute there you were getting scared, Pop. Oh, David. Oh, just remember this, boys. There's not a cowardly bone in your father's body. Of course, every now and then the meat around them gets a little jumpy. <laughs> meat around. <laughs> what am I laughing at? When the show moved to NBC in 1948, it was positioned as the lead-in for the Jack Benny program. That Halloween, Ozzy and Harriet went to a haunted house. Nelson will get you if you don't watch out. Yes, indeed. Ozzie Nelson, arch enemy of all ghosts, goblins, spirits, and similar supernatural phenomena, is on the march. Target for tonight. The ghost that walks in the old McAdams house. See the courageous Ozzie as he strides firmly across the porch of 1847 Rogers Road. Chin up, flashlight swinging at his side. Down the steps, down the walk. And now he stops. Every muscle tense, eyes alert, nose twitching. A white, filmy object moves out of the darkness. Who's there? It's me, Mr. Nelson. Oh, oh, hello, Annie Lou. I came over to show you my Halloween costume. I'm going to a party. Where are you going, Mr. Nelson? Oh, I'm uh, on an errand for the boys. They went up to the old McAdams house tonight, and they think they saw a ghost. Really, Mr. Nelson? Yeah, I'm going up there, you know, to prove to them it was just their imagination. You're going in that spooky old house tonight, alone? Well, of course. Evidently, you haven't heard the story about the McAdams place. Well, I've heard some silly rumor it's supposed to be haunted or something. Oh, but it is, Mr. Nelson. I heard the whole story from the people who live next door. The story goes that years ago in Scotland, in the old Haggis Castle, the young 
and beautiful Lady Jane McAdams had a quarrel with her lover, Douglas McDingle McCampbell McTavish. A Scotchman. Yes. Yes, Well, anyway, Lady Jane pushed her lover, Douglas McDingle McCampbell McTavish, down the stairs. Down, down, down he went. His head banging on each stone step. Thump, thump, crunch, crunch. His bagpipes mournfully playing, the Campbells are coming. As he lay at the bottom of the staircase dying, Douglas McDingle McCampbell McTavish, or as they called him, Mac, as, as he lay at the bottom of the staircase, he took an oath. I'd swear a little myself. (laughs) He took an oath that he'd follow Lady Jane wherever she went. His spirit would always haunt her. Where did she go? She came here to the United States and built the old McCaffrey's place. And they say that on nights of a full moon, like tonight, the giant ghost of Lord McTavish returns. And while the eerie notes of bagpipes ring in the night air... He prowls the house in search of Lady Jane. <laughs> ah, it, it makes a good story, but nobody in his right mind would believe it. Well, you believe it, don't you, Mr. Nelson? Yes, but I'm not. I'm. Uh, uh, of course, it's a lot of nonsense. Okay, Mr. Nelson, but remember, if you go up there tonight and see the ghost and get a terrible fright and drop dead, don't come around saying I didn't warn you. Happy I've been thinking this over, and I don't think I'll go. The whole idea seems sort of childish. Well, what about the boys, dear? You promised them. I, I, I know, but, but I mean, after all, isn't it silly for a full-grown man? It, it's only a wild go- uh, uh, goose. Uh, it, it, that, that's all it is. Well, if you'd and, like, dear, I'll go with you. And the boys... What did you say? I said I'll go with you. There are times, Harriet, when a man likes to be alone. Oh. <laughs> well, all right, dear. Get your coat. This isn't one of those times. Don't get nervous now, dear. Just keep cool. Oh, I'm cool, all right. Matter of fact, I'm shivering a little. Hold my hand good and tight. I can't. Mm-hmm. You're squeezing mine so hard the fingers are asleep. Sorry. Is that better? It's better. How do we get through this iron fence? There's a gate here someplace, I think. It'll probably be bolted and spoil all our fun. We usually have a huge lock on these things and thick chains. Now, here we are. Oh. Locked? No. Well, push it open. Here, will you take the flashlight a second? Thanks. And, and, and the baseball bat, too. Ooh. Doesn't this place look weird? Yes, it is pretty spooky in that. Shall I uh, sing something to keep your nerve up? If you want to, dear. It'll keep you from getting scared. Did you ever think as the hearse goes by someday you are going 
a spook in the meadow. Dear, dear, it might frighten the ghost. Must be a haunted house. The door squeaks. I, I don't know why you insisted on coming along, Harriet. I could just as easily have come by myself. Ozzy, something has hold of my coat. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Who, who closed the door? Didn't you? No. Oh, it must have been the wind. Gee, this place sure looks creepy with the moon streaming through the windows. What was that? What? Now, dear, don't be frightened. I, I'm right beside you. Ozzy, there's something in this room. It's coming toward us. It's getting closer. Harry, quick, my baseball bat. Hey, Oz, careful with that. Oh, Harry. Oh. Hello, Harriet. Huh? You old trickster. Oh, I just thought I'd have a little fun with all the talk that's been going around about this place. So you're the ghost David and Ricky saw. <laughs> I should have guessed by the description. You should have a bagpipe, though, Thorny. A bagpipe? Well, sure, haven't you heard? This place is supposed to be haunted by a Scotch ghost who plays the bagpipe. And each night he comes down the stairs playing some old... Well, you do have one, Thorny. Where is it? <laughs> oh, you sure play awful. Worse than you think. I don't play at all. <laughs> but I hear a bagpipe. Listen, I can hear it plain as day. Ozzy, up there, the head of the stairs. The ghost. The ghost of Lord McTavish. Well, we've seen it. Let's go. <laughs> now, let's all keep calm about this. We'll, we'll just be quiet. Oh, it's oh, it's getting late, Thorny. Let's get out of here. Ozzy, you're carrying my Oz, the door won't open. I keep turning the handle and it won't open. Stop it, Thorny. You've got hold of my nose. <laughs> this way, boys. Thorny, the door's over here. Follow me. I'll make one of my own. The move to Sunday nights paid off. By December, the show scored its highest rating ever, 17. Ladies and gentlemen, next week we'll be with you again at the same time with the same cast on another network. However, I want to take this opportunity of thanking everyone connected with NBC for a very pleasant association. And I also want to wish everybody a very happy New Year. But then... Jack Benny jumped to CBS in January, and the bottom fell out of NBC's Sunday night ratings. Well, you had insisted on the comedy commercial right from the beginning. Right and from the very first show. When you had the sportsman on the, was yeah. it the Lucky Strike well, program where they jelly, came in? That was Jello, Lucky Strike, right. everything, right. yeah. Well, you wrote most of those, didn't you? Or have with a big my writers, with my writers, yeah, sure. We wrote every one of them. When we started for Jello, the Jello commercials saved Jello because Jello was going out of business almost on account of Knox Gelatin was mm. beating Jell-O, beating the hell out of them. And so they wanted the comedy commercials, figuring that that could be the one thing that would save it. And by golly, it, it did. It did it.
at the top of the hour on October 31st, 1948. The Jack Benny program went on the air on NBC. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. gentlemen, tonight is Halloween, and in Beverly Hills, as in communities all over the country, the little goblins have already started through the neighborhood playing trick or treat. Well, this is the last house in the block. Before we go to the next street, I think we ought to put all the stuff we got in one big bag. You go first, Bobby. I'm Joy. Bobby and me changed masks. Well, it doesn't make any difference. Let's all empty our pockets and see what we got. I'll go first. I got a piece of fudge. A stick of gum and two lollipops. I got an apple, some popcorn, two cookies, and a chocolate bar. I got some lemon drops, a peppermint stick, and a donut. I got a Tootsie Roll, a packet... <laughs> a package of Lifesavers and a can of Strong Heart. <laughs> hmm, dog food, huh? Fellas, we're wasting time. Let's get over to the next street and knock on some more doors. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah go. let's go. Hey, Bobby, there's that new kid that moved into the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Hey, Butch. Hiya, fellas. You playing trick-or-treat, too? Yeah, I've been to every house in the neighborhood. You have? Hey, what do you got in that big gunny sack? A walnut and two jelly beans. Ah, <laughs> eh, Beverly Hills. <laughs> One summer day in 1948, William S. Paley received a proposal from Lou Wasserman and Taft Schreiber. They were the president and vice president of the Music Corporation of America. They asked if CBS would be interested in buying the Amos and Andy show, then airing on NBC. At the time, U.S. citizens were taxed 77% of all income over $70,000. However, if the duo behind Amos and Andy, Charles Correll and Freeman Gosden, incorporated and sold their show to the network. They would be taxed under capital gains laws at 25%. NBC wouldn't allow the deal, but William Paley jumped at the chance. Amos and Andy moved over on October 10th. Shortly after, Lou Wasserman phoned again. He asked if CBS would be interested in purchasing the Jack Benny program. So I moved, and I didn't want to leave NBC. I loved NBC, but I had to make some kind of a deal where I could make some money because here I was getting a terrific salary and was all salary, and I couldn't make a deal for a company. Well, I wouldn't care if I got a million dollars a week. That wouldn't do me any good. What good would that be? With income the tax, tax that, right? right. Sure. Right. So the ones that made me the deal and came right through with it quick was... CBS. Then, of course, when NBC realized I was going to go, then they were willing to make the deal. But I didn't want to play one against the other, so I merely took CBS. Well, CBS had uh, generally rated NBC at that time, didn't they, with these uh, No, NBC, NBC was, yeah, once I got on. But NBC 
was really the first network. Then when I moved over, a lot of shows moved over. Mm-hmm. So that made really CBS come up on top. Yeah, I made the millions CBS by that move, which I didn't know or didn't think, you know. Benny organized his activities into a corporation. Bailey and Wasserman negotiated an agreement for CBS to buy it for $2.26 million. NBC sent President Niles Trammell to California with orders to keep Benny at NBC. When William Paley heard that Trammell was on his way to California, he called Benny directly and arranged an in-person meeting. Benny invited him to Los Angeles. Paley and CBS counsel Ralph Collins set up shop at the Beverly Hills Hotel. RCA head David Sarnoff was there as well to help ensure Niles Trammell would secure the deal. NBC responded with a major counteroffer. Lou Wasserman intervened. CBS matched the counteroffer, and an impressed Jack Benny signed it. Sponsor American Tobacco was uneasy. Paley convinced them to back the move by offering compensation for every ratings point Benny's show lost. Ah, here we are, boys. This is Mr. Harris's house. Now, look, you kids go up to the door, and I'll hide here behind these bushes. Okay. No, fellas, this has been an awful tame Halloween. Yeah, let's have some fun. Let's tip over Mr. Harris's trash can. Okay, here goes! buy anything in cans? Kids, <laughs> kids, go, go ahead, go ahead and ring the bell. Okay, I'll ring the bell and then we'll all hide. I guess Mr. Harris isn't home. His wife answered the door. Yeah, look at her standing there. Isn't she beautiful? Well, who is it? Who rang the bell? She's beautiful, all right, but she sure got a deep voice. Oh, there you are. Hey, you boys out celebrating Halloween? Uh-huh. Trick or treat. Oh, trick or treat, huh? Well, which would you kids rather have? We'd rather have the treat. Okay, here goes. Oh, won't you come with me to Alabama? There we'll meet my dear old mammy. She's frying eggs and broiling hell. Bell! That's what I like about the South High, you, Jackson. <laughs> You with these boys, or are you working solo? <laughs> Look, I'm with the boys, and we're having a lot of fun playing trick or treat. Well, I bet you can't wait till Easter when the fuzzy wuzzy bunny rabbit hides it in a bitty <laughs> Never mind that, Phil. You just don't know how to enjoy yourself. Maybe you're right. Come on in, Jackson. Hey, come on in, kids. Okay, come on, Beavers. Come on. Phil, is Alice home? No, Alice took the children to a Halloween party and I had to stay home with her money. (laughs) Well, if you ever need a sitter, call me up. (laughs) So you're you're here all alone, huh? Yeah, but I don't mind, Jackson. I've been sitting here looking through my old picture album, you know, when I was a kid. Can we see them, Mr. Harris? Sure. Hey, look, there's a picture of me in school when I was in the first grade. See it? Gee, what a cute bunch of little kids. 
But the teacher looks kind of familiar. That ain't the teacher, that's me. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were kind of slow in school, weren't you, Phil? Yeah, the teachers didn't seem to like me either. They were always picking on me. Did they make you stand in the corner? Listen, Junior, I stood in the corner so much I was the only kid in class with a triangular forehead. <laughs> triangular forehead? Gee, how'd you get rid of it? He massaged it till the point went to the top. <laughs> Say, Phil, this picture here, that, that's Remley, isn't it? Yeah, that's Frankie. <laughs> that picture was taken 18 years ago, the day he got out of school. Oh, on graduation day. Well, why isn't he wearing a cap and gown? Look, Jackson, the school Remley went to, you didn't graduate. You just had to be able to get over the wall. <laughs> oh. Incidentally, he never would have made it if I wasn't there to give him a boost. <laughs> Phil, I think you're just... Oh, uh, excuse me a minute, Jackson. Hello, this is the residence of Phil Harris and Alice Fay. And... Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I didn't know it was you or I'd have given you a top billing. <laughs> no, I'm not alone. Jackson dropped in with a bunch of kids, so I brought out my album and we got to talking about old times. You know, effervescing. That's reminiscing. <laughs> hmm. I know, honey. One of the kids just told me. <laughs> what did you call me for, baby? Uh, oh, okay, I'll be right over and get you Well, we've got to run along, Phil Okay, Jackson, see you tomorrow So long, kids Bye. Bye. Bye Gee, that Phil Harris is a nice guy But I wish his wife, Alice Faye, was home Yeah, she's beautiful She certainly is <laughs> She's got the bluest eyes I've ever seen Oh, yeah? <laughs> Come over here under the street light. There. Now, come on, kids. We've got about five more houses. Now, now, look at where we go next. Hey, I know a good Halloween trick. What? Well, there are five of us. Let's go tip over Don Wilson. No. <laughs> well, we mustn't do that. But I know what. Let's go over to Mr. Wilson's house anyway. Okay. Come on, Beavers. Come on. It's getting late. All right, kids. Here, here's Don Wilson's house. Gee, it's dark inside, but the door is open. Look, I better go in alone first. Okay. Now, wait here. Don. Don. Hmm, it's so dark in here. Don! Don, where are you? Jack! Jack, we're in here, me and the sportsman. Oh. Well, Don, what are you doing in this big house with, with all the lights out? We're telling ghost stories. Jack, we have a wonderful Halloween song we want to do. Yeah? Yeah. There are a few places where you join in, and there's one place where we want you to do a weird, crazy laugh. A weird, crazy laugh? All right, let's start. Well, we have to wait about 10 seconds yet. Why? We can't start till 9.26, bull of a witch time. Oh. <laughs> All right, but look at we've only got about... We've only got about five seconds more. Ready, everybody? Okay. L-S-M-F-T Give you a thrill There's a house on a hill 
full of spooks, but we will frighten them away. Take off my toupee. Come with the wolves, we will prowl. This is our night to howl. And we'll hoot like an owl. Hoot, hoot. We are the goblins who know where the warm breezes blow. And tobacco leaves grow. L-S-M-F-T. That's a smoke for me. So take a tip from a ghost. Use tobacco they toast. It's the one we like most. Oh, oh. Now? Go! Oh. Now? Yes! Go! <laughs> Aren't we the ones? Whoops! Look, there goes the skeleton. I'm shaking like gelatin. Before you get frightened, you better start lighting the lucky and then we can go. So take a puff and you'll see. And we're sure you'll agree. And say lucky's for me. They are first again with tobacco men. Now, if you hand us our broom, we'll be leaving here soon. And go haunting for F.E. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well, Jack, uh, maybe we could use it as a commercial on the program sometime. No, and it would scare all the people. Well, I better go. The beavers are waiting for me. So long, Don. So long. Ouch. Hmm. Imagine putting a mouse trap in a fruit bowl. If he doesn't want people to eat his fruit, why doesn't he keep it locked up like I do? <laughs> hey, kids. Kids, come on out. We'll... Kids. Now, where did they go? I better give the beaver call. Oh! <laughs> Gee, that's the beaver's distress signal. I better hurry. Coming, fellas! Coming! Gee, I wonder what happened. I hope it's nothing serious. Well, there they are behind that fence. What happened, fellas? What Stevie happened? Stevie tore his pants climbing over the fence. Yes, and I want to go home. Oh, come on, Stevie. That's nothing to cry over. What's so bad about tearing a hole in your pants? I was carrying my rabbit there, and he got away. <laughs> I want to go home. Oh, don't let that rip in your pants spoil our fun. Now, I'll climb over the fence, and I'll fix it for you. <clears throat> well, so long, fellas I better go home, too well, We all better go home, huh? Okay, Mr. Benny But before we break up We want to say something to you What is it? What is it, man? For he's a jolly good beaver For he's a jolly good beaver For he's a jolly good beaver He's only 39 Ah, <laughs> uh, thanks Thanks a lot, fellas Thanks a lot See you at the next meeting Good night Good night Ah, gee, what a night. Such fun. Ah, it's great to be young. Uh-oh. 
I wonder... Well, it, it won't hurt to try. Trick or treat? I'm sorry, but I'm only the watchman in this bank. Understand it. Some people never want to get into the spirit of this thing. <laughs> well, I might as well go home, I guess. Hop, hop, till you drop. Skip, skip. Don't you trip. Step on a crack, you break your back. Oh, darn it, I stepped on one. Man, <laughs> ah, nobody saw me. <laughs> For I'm a jolly good beaver. For I'm a jolly good beaver. For I'm a jolly good beaver. Why don't I pay my dues? Why don't I pay my The rating for this episode of the show in October of 1948 was 20.3 for NBC. In January of 1949, the Jack Benny program on CBS had a rating of 28.3, the highest in radio. NBC was never again the radio industry leader. Yeah, you were on the way back to Rutgers that time, or are you just... Yeah, we were going down, they had the Centennial down there. It was really pretty interesting. We had a marvelous time. The first time I'd been to Rutgers in about 30 years, and I don't know if you've ever gone back to the scenes of your youth. It's a little difficult sometimes. Somebody once said that you go back to try to recapture the scenes of your youth and you get back there and you discover that what you're really trying to recapture is your youth itself. If you'd like to make a note of that, Ed, it's a, uh, and uh, if you want to throw it in from time, if the show's bubbling along too fast, you want to slow it down a little. Uh, 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 we, could get, uh, we could have a Xerox of that made up and pass. We'll have that Xerox and pass it out if the people leave tonight. I'm a traveling man Made a lot of stops All over the world And in every port I own the heart of In the aftermath of Jack Benny's move to CBS, the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet lost half their audience. Ozzie and director Glenn Hall Taylor were searching for an answer. On February 20th, 1949, they broadcast an episode called Invitation to Dinner. It marked a pivotal turning point for the first time, David and Ricky Nelson played themselves. David was 11, Ricky 8, and the younger son's charisma was undeniable from the beginning. At 1847 Rogers Road, where the Nelsons live, there's usually an air of happiness prevailing. It starts at the big friendly welcome mat on the front porch and continues clear through the big friendly house to the big friendly backyard where Nick, the family setter, lives. He's the big friendly dog with a laugh and his bark. But today there's one face that doesn't fit in with this happy atmosphere. Young David Nelson seems to have something on his mind. What's wrong, David? You've hardly said a word all morning. It's nothing, Mom. Well, there's something bothering you. What is it? It's nothing, really, Mom. David. Harriet, please. You say it's nothing, David. Is that right? That's right, Pop. All right, if it's nothing, it's nothing. Well, just forget it. 
paper? It is something. Oh? I kind of thought you'd like to tell us about it. And what seems to be the trouble? It's nothing, Pop. <laughs> David, we're not trying to pry into your personal affairs, but why don't you just tell us about it? Maybe we can help you. It's kind of silly, I guess. See, Grace Johnson invited me to her party Friday night, and I told her I'd come. Well, that sounds very nice. Yeah, but our team is supposed to play basketball Friday night, so I gotta tell her I can't make it. Is David a dope pop? Ricky, read your comic book. In other words, David, you mean you forgot you had to play basketball, and that's why you accepted her invitation? Oh, no, I remembered it. You mean when you accepted Grace's invitation, you knew you couldn't make it? That it was the same night as your basketball game? Yes, sir. Now is David a dope pop? Ricky. <laughs> well, then why did you accept it, David? Well, golly, Mom, she seemed so excited about the party. I just didn't have the heart to disappoint her. Well, I realize how you must have felt, David, but you're going to have to tell her sometime. Now will be a bigger disappointment. You find it's much better to tell people the truth right off. Otherwise, you'll wind up in an embarrassing situation for everybody. Are they going to have ice cream at the party? Oh, sure, gallons of it. That's another thing, Pop. I'd feel awful silly if I turned on the party and then the basketball game was called off. Do you think that's possible? Never called one off yet. Oh, Ricky, you keep quiet. Do you think it may be called off, David? Well, I don't know. There's always a chance. Lots of things could happen. Like what? Well, suppose the captain of the other team gets the measles. That sounds to me like a pretty remote possibility. Maybe not, Pop. A couple of weeks ago, we were supposed to take an arithmetic test and the teacher got the appendicitis. Well, that was just a rare coincidence. I think the safest thing for you to do is call Grace on the phone and tell her you can't make it. Maybe I could go to the party first and then play basketball. I think you'd be too full of ice cream and cake to play much of a game. He could be the basketball. <laughs> I guess I'll just think it over. Well, it's your problem, David. But you know the old proverb, never put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Procrastination is the thief of time. Oh, are you going to say something, Harry? Yes, did you go downtown and pay the gas bill yesterday? You said you would. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Harriet. Now, here is a perfect example of the point I'm trying to make, David. Your mother asked me to pay the gas bill yesterday, and instead of putting it off until tomorrow, I'm going down and pay it today. <laughs> I was 14 when I went on television for the first time, but previous to that, the Ozzie and Harriet show was on radio. And it was on for three years prior to my brother and myself joining the cast. We kind of talked our father and mother into letting us be on the radio show because it sounded like a lot of fun. At the time, I was 11 and Rick was 7. We did a couple of previews and my brother got a lot of laughs, so they decided to put us on the show. I think it was a hard decision for them, at least in talking with them over the years that I've found because Rick, being seven, could not read yet. He uh, memorized all the radio scripts. But I can recall Rick sitting at a table because they didn't have a mic that would come down far enough to him for him to stand up. But he refused to go on the show without a script, even though he had memorized his part. So he would slide these pages on the table and do the radio show that way. There were several incidents that were... He got a lot of laughs that he wasn't supposed to because he had a feeling that since he couldn't sit his feet under the table, the audience couldn't either. And he would one by one take his shoes off and then his socks would come off. He'd take one toe and put it on the back of the sock and pull it off. And Father Katerine, he laughed. He couldn't figure out where they were coming from. Finally, one night he turned around and saw it. You hear it over the back of the 
Program sponsor International Silver moved the show back to CBS in April, but the audience didn't respond. In the summer of 1949, ABC came calling with a multi-year contract and the promise of television in the future. Under the sponsorship of Heinz Foods, the Nelson family moved to ABC's newly potent Friday night schedule on October 14, 1949. Say, don't I know you from somewhere? Good morning. Don't tell me you finally decided to get up. Make a simple statement right away, Dave gets belligerent. The word is belligerent. Big man owns a dictionary. You and millions of other radio fans have wanted to see the Nelsons in all their hilarious glory. In 1952, they starred in Here Come the Nelsons. The film was a hit, and Ozzy was convinced they could all make the transition from radio's airwaves to television's small screen. On October 3rd, 1952, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet made its TV debut. Jack Wagner was an oft-used actor on the program. I met the Nelsons around 1938 or 39, and it wasn't until the early 50s that I became professionally involved with the Nelson family on their network radio show and then on the television series. And I started on the fourth TV show in an episode called David's First Tuxedo or something like that. And although it was all about David getting a first tuxedo when I was the clerk in the shop, Ricky had all the funny lines, and boy, did he deliver them well. You know, when I uh, look at the uh, Ozzie and Harriet show every day on the Disney Channel, I'm reminded of how well that little kid performed. He had a wonderful sense of comedy timing, and his facial expressions were always just right. Wonderful sense of humor. In fact, uh, I remember there were times that I could barely get my lines out without spoiling a scene from laughing at one of Rick's shenanigans, where he might be making a funny face at me or doing something crazy with a hamburger in a malt shop scene. And once we got laughing, why, it was a long time before we could really get our act together. We just couldn't look at each other, you know, and before we'd start breaking up. Being a part of that show, while at the same time having such close contact with the Nelson family, is truly a segment of my life that I will always treasure. Meanwhile on radio, the show climbed the overall rankings as network audiences were shifting to TV. It eventually went off the air in June of 1954. The TV show was broadcast in first run until September 3, 1966, becoming one of the longest-running sitcoms in television history. closer and then I saw the blood, a huge puddle of it spread across the cream carpet, deep red and sopping wet, and him crouched on the ground, leaning over her, tearing at her flesh and, and shoving pieces of my mother into his mouth. She'd been completely emptied out, her torso was torn open and, and she was hollow. I screamed. I think. Quietly Yours, the horror anthology podcast 
filled with stories that are not safe for bedtime. Available on your podcast app of choice. What's happening? I don't know. Maybe it's a drill or something? If it's a drill, what are they shooting at? John Gassman? Yes, sir. I'm returning your call to Art Linkletter. Oh, hello there. How are you? I understand that you want to talk about taping something on early radio days? Yeah, as part of our convention, we're going to do a panel on audience participation shows. And yeah. we, we've got Urban Atkins and Bob Dwan, and I figured the next best thing to having you here would be uh, a little tape that we could play at the convention. Yeah, what kind of a tape? Well, it have to be audio. Yeah. How do you do it? How do you propose doing it? I have a phone patch on the phone. I can just record it over the phone. Oh, fine. And play it. Yeah. And I can do that whenever you uh, have the time to do a couple of minutes. Well, what about right now? Lady, are you sure you know where your husband is tonight? We have a lady who doesn't, and you'll meet her later on... People are funny! from Hollywood, John Goodell's production of People Are Funny, brought to you by Forever Yours and Milky Way Candy Bar. On Friday, April 10th, 1942, People Are Funny debuted over NBC Airwaves, sponsored by Brown and Williamson Tobacco. It was the brainchild of game show maven John Goodell. We started our show, matter of fact it was called Pull Over Neighbor. Mm-hmm. And it was on the coast, and it started in June 5th, 1938, here on Pacific Coast on NBC. And Edward's show started in 1940, coast to coast. So we started two years earlier, but he was on coast to coast before. And ah. we didn't use the title People Are Funny until 1942. So Art Baker was the uh-huh. MC for Full Over Neighbor for two and a half years. Then he was the MC for All Aboard for six months. And then the show was off the air and couldn't sell it. But there was an advertising club luncheon, oh, somewhere in 1940, I guess it was. And I was sitting down at the table at the Biltmore Hotel, and uh, there were some pretty important executives around there, the president of the uh, Richfield Oil Company and the head of a bank and so forth in the, mm-hmm. one of the front tables. And I was looking at them, and they were all drawing pictures on the table, doodling. You know, one draws sailor, and one draws stars, and one draws some wheat, a tree. And the man on the stage was making a pretty dull speech, you know. He was, you know, was just talking there. And so I wrote down a comment about what was going on. I wrote, people are funny. Just the phrase, people are funny, as a comment. Then I put, I, I made it big, lots of letters and big thick letters, you know, made it look like a, the 20th Century Fox, you know, uh-huh. the, the, the <laughs> logo. And I thought, well, there's a theme for a program, human nature, proving that people are funny. Goodell was a jack of all trades. In addition to writing, he'd spent time as a WPA ditch digger, traveling salesman, and a collector of rejection slips from his own failed ideas. People Are Funny would be a stunt show. Contestants could win cash and merchandise. What happened was I thought I should have a psychologist on it. 
and do a stunt and then have a psychologist analyze it. I got a hold of a fella at USC named Milton Metfessel, who was a very high-class psychologist down there, teacher. We made a record, and this record we made with Art Linkletter. Now that's where he comes into the picture, it's kind of interesting. I had a friend named Bruce Ells. Bruce was a bank examiner, and Bruce said, can I get into radio? I don't like to be a bank examiner. And I said, I can get you a job, I think, with the head of Mutual as a salesman, which shouldn't be too hard. After all, salesmen are on commission. And he said, good. So I got him this job, and he became their very best salesman. That's Mutual on the coast. Mm -hmm. It was called Don Lee. It's a whole bunch of 30 stations on the coast. And he traveled a lot. And he came back from one of his trips, and he said, you know, last Sunday night in San Francisco, I was walking across the lobby of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel, and there's this young fellow who was interviewing people on a program he called Who's Dancing Tonight, just standing there with a the microphone talking to people, and I thought he's awful good, and you ought to meet him. I think he's better than the fellow you have on, Art Baker. I said, sure, what's his name? He said, Art Linkletter. And I said, well, the next time you run into him up there, because he's a trick guy traveling, tell him to, next time he's in Los Angeles, I'd like to have lunch with him. And so he did set up such a lunch. And I met Art, he was standing by a lamppost out in front of the um, Belrose Grotto, and uh, I introduced myself, and we went in and hit it off right away. And uh, he had an idea for a psychology program called Meet Yourself. And I had People Are Funny, so we joined forces and made this record. With People Are Funny set to go on the air in April of 1942, Goodell brought both Linkletter and Baker in as co-MCs. About a year went by, and I read in the paper in March of 1942, that's right after the war started, the Daily Variety had a front page story saying that the government gave the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company one week to get a program off the air, and not even one more broadcast, because it was called Captain Flag and Sergeant Quirk, and that's a funny show, and they did not, during wartime, want to show or depict army officers fraternizing with enlisted men. Well, I'd been writing letters to everybody, and so I took this yellow sheet of paper and wrote, I have the answer to your problem, and sent it to the man's name of the agency, Russell uh, Tom Wallace. The Russell Seeds Agency in Chicago was mentioned in the article mm -hmm. as being involved. I did feel I could afford to send a telegram because I sent out so many letters I saying, I have the answer to your problem, that I just sent letters, you know. So apparently they did have a quick problem, so they sent a wire back, what is it? And I sent them the record. And they got it on Wednesday. They said, how much do you want for it? And I said, we want $5,000 a week. And they said, we'll offer you $750. And I said, well, is um, that your rock top? <laughs> and uh, we argued a bit and ended up at $750 for four weeks. And we went on two days later. You see, we had to go on that Friday. We didn't see any of the people back east. They had live radio time coming Ready up Friday go, at yeah. 6 o'clock yeah. on NBC and what's going to fill it. So they had this high-class $750 program called mm -hmm. The People Are Funny. It was fair. Well, did you do that now with two Both MCs. MCs. Both, Both MCs. MCs. But right now, Roy Rowan, who's first to help us prove that people are funny in Hollywood? 
Miss Carol Nervy from Pasadena, California. Meet Art Linkletter. Hello, Miss Nervy. How do you do? As you know, Halloween Tricks and Treats will be with us soon, October 31st. Your trick on this program will be along in a minute, but right now, here's a treat. A big 24-bar box of that dark chocolate favorite, Forever Yours. Thank you. Now, you're a single girl. Yeah. And your first name is? Carol. What do you do, Carol? I'm an x-ray technician, registered. And you're a very pretty blonde. And uh, you've never been married? No. Uh-huh. There's no reason why you shouldn't if we found the right fella. I don't think so. Uh-huh. You're <laughs> romantically inclined. Why, should As a matter of fact, Miss Nerby, I must confess to something. Our first stunt tonight, we really need a married woman, and you're single, and would you pretend, just for the fun of it, pretend that you're married for the evening? I will. You will. All right. You go along with this. Okay. I now pronounce you a married woman. And what do you know, folks? Already, here is her first child. Will you bring it out, please? <laughs> Just take him. He's a six-and-a-half-month baby. Boy, is he a cutie pie? <laughs> Say, don't things go fast on this show? <laughs> she was a single girl a minute ago. Now she's married and has a baby. Uh, take a look at him. Do you think he looks uh, more like you or your husband? Well, he doesn't have my brown eyes. Yeah, and you don't know what your husband looks like, do you? No, not now. <laughs> well, it doesn't make any difference because, Mrs. Nerby, you don't have any husband now because he has just deserted you. You see, things do happen fast. A minute ago, she wasn't married. Now she's married, has a baby, and her husband's gone. And I'll tell you where he is. He's down at a Hollywood bus station getting ready to take a bus and desert you and your child. Are you properly confused? I am. Do you, you don't know what I'm driving at? Huh? I see a look of horror creeping into her eyes. Well, this, this, is, this is the truth, Miss Nerby. Here's the idea of the stunt. We're going to drive you, Mr. Irvin Atkins there, you and your new baby, down to a bus station, and he'll point out a man to you. He will? Now, you rush up to this stranger, and you accuse him. Of deserting you and your baby. <laughs> I want you to make this dramatic and believable. Pretend I'm the husband. What would you say? You scoundrel! How dare you run away and leave us alone? That's pretty good, isn't it? She catches on real fast. Well, I tell you. Uh, you remember the landlady needs the rent? There's no milk for the baby in the house. Anything you can think of, don't worry about the stranger. Because he's an actor that we've hired that Irv will point out. What we want to find out is the reactions of the people in the bus station. There are always maybe 30 or 40 people waiting. Will they take sides in a family squabble? People are funny about sticking their nose into other people's business. You got that? Yes. And kind of take note of what that will they, will they side with you or him and so forth. And it'll be kind of an interesting report when you get back, okay? All right. All right, on your way, Irv. Say goodbye to the poor, deserted wife. You know how we're going to double-cross her? How much of the people are funny in house party shows were actually scripted? Or were they outlined, outlines, perhaps? Or? Just the material I needed, for instance, to know uh, where we were going and what the prizes were going to be and what the real gist of the show was, whether it was uh, sending a person on a wild goose chase somewhere or dressing him up and putting him into a situation or inciting a fight in the audience between an actor and then getting witnesses who were seated around there at random and what they saw and what really happened. Whatever it was, I just had the uh, outline and we'd talk it through. And since I was also a writer, 
an associate producer on the show. I knew the show thoroughly by the time I walked out there. Within a month, Goodell negotiated a raise to $850 an episode. When B&W was ready to renew for a full season, Art Baker made it known he resented sharing duties with Linkletter and gave an ultimatum. Goodell preferred Linkletter, but Baker was the bigger name and the sponsor took his side. The 1942-43 season was a rating success. People Are Funny scored the first of its six consecutive seasons in Friday's Top 10 and was NBC's highest-rated entertainment show of the night. Behind the scenes, Baker continually sniped at Goodell and complained to the sponsor. But John Goodell knew of a clause in Baker's contract that allowed for a potential termination every 13 weeks. After October 1st, 1943, he exercised it. Baker sued. Linkletter took over. He'd never give the role up. Say, Roy, would you believe it? The other day I was actually talking to some men from Mars. <laughs> oh, sure, Art. Everybody does. They land in flying saucers, and they're little people with three heads and purple eyes. Roy, one more word from you, and you'll be working on another show. These men from Mars do not have three heads and purple eyes. They're from the Mars Candy Company, right here on Earth. Of course, the candy they make is out of this world because they are the makers of the forever yours candy bars. A week from Saturday is Halloween. The night for all the spooks and the goblins to be out, and believe me, when they come to my house, they're going to be happy. Happy because I'm stocking up on Forever Yours and Milky Way candy bars right there at home. And the kids will really go for them. I know that from past seasons. It's the best candy that money can buy. And there's another reason I'm passing out Forever Yours and Milky Way candy bars this Halloween. The colorful free masks on the back of the Forever Yours 24-bar package. And on the backs of Milky Way's 24s and Milky Way 6-packs. Now, our announcer, Roy, is holding them up. Look at some of them. Here's one of a pirate, and here's one of a silly clown. And look at this horrible... <laughs> Art, that's me. I beg your pardon, Roy. I didn't think they were turning out masks so frightening this year. Anyhow, there are 18 different masks in full color on the Mars candy boxes, and the kids will love them when they go out for tricks and treats. Now, ladies and gentlemen, take a tip from me and give forever yours and Milky Way candy bars on Halloween night. You'll be the ghost of the town with all the little spooks who come calling on you. Forever yours and Milky Ways, the best treats that ever turned a trick on Halloween. And before the days when you could edit, I would imagine, you probably had a pretty good time clock in your head so you knew how long very good. each should last. Very, very good. There's nobody can direct or produce a show that's running like that except really the person who's doing it. He has to sense not only the time but how the show is going. And if you uh, cut it or uh, augment it by uh, things as the audience plays, you know, you're just playing against a wall like handball. When the audience reaction is great, you keep the thing going. And uh, everything that went wrong, you had to correct. There was no way of erasing it. If it was outrageous or unforgivable, you had to chide the person and correct him and apologize to the audience if he blurted out something wrong. Or you had to... Um, pretend that, especially in radio, that something very good was happening, when actually not too much might be happening. I've given people a reunion with a long-lost son or brother or father on the program, and they just said, well, yeah, fine. And they look at you rather stoically. Then you have to augment that a little, let people say the, the reunion is very touching. 
So you had to prepare for the unexpected. Yes, and television made it even worse because you saw what you saw and you couldn't fool anybody. People Are Funny became a Friday night staple throughout the 1940s. In addition, Goodell would create House Party and You Bet Your Life. By 1953, with radio's audiences waning, People Are Funny was on CBS Tuesdays at 8 p.m. for Mars Candy. Who's next, Roy? Mr. Stanley Mitchell from Los Angeles. Meet Art Linkletter. Howdy, Mr. Mitchell. You're Mr. Mitchell, a single man. Yes, sir. Well, to sweeten you up a little more, as a bachelor, here's a big box of 24 delicious forever yours candy bars. Thank you. Now, uh, Stanley, what do you do for a living? Uh, take care of the mail. Where? Terminal Annex. Here in Los Angeles? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you're 40? Right. And never been married? Yes, I have. <laughs> How many true friends do you think you could count on? It's something very few people have given a lot of thought to, but how many would you say? Well, quite a few. You have a lot of friends. Quite a few. Uh-huh. What's your definition of a true friend? Oh, I would say one who would go to bat for you when you're in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Another definition would be a fellow who might loan you money when you need it without asking you why you have to have it or when he'll get it back. Wouldn't that be a definition of a true friend? <coughs> You're forcing me to say yes. <laughs> I would say so. A true friend would right. do that. You come up to him and say, Joe, I need ten bucks or whatever it is, and he gives it to you. Right. All right. Now, do you think that you have a friend <clears throat> whom you could telephone this evening who would let you borrow $100 on a quick, unexplained notice? I think so. You think you have? Well, we're going to find out. People are funny about judging how many friends they have. There's a telephone over there on that table. It's an outside phone with a connection. We'll be able to hear both ends of the conversation. And if you can get one of your friends to promise to lend you $100 tonight, we're going to give you an all-expense-paid vacation at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas. Wow. Now, you've got a number in mind. You've got some friend you know his number. Just lift up the receiver. He's really uh, scratching his forehead there. And you just start dialing, and there are two rules. You can't tell him you're on People Are Funny... You can't tell him why you need it. You must do it in a minute and a half after you get him. After your I can't tell him why I need it? No, you just say you need it badly, see? All right. Now, just start dialing. Lift it up and start dialing. Hello? Johnny? Yes. This is uh, Stan. Oh, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Say, um... Uh, I'm kind of a bad spot, but I, uh, I need some money pretty bad. Can you let me have it for a day or so? Uh, well, uh, listen, uh, can you meet me down Fedco tonight? Well, uh, uh, I just, well, I just like to know, you know, I mean, it's, uh, quite a bit, but I, I, I just like to know. Uh, I need it pretty bad. Yeah, well, how much? I need to go.
Who who was that fella? That was uh, John Goodman, a clerk, a uh, friend of mine. A clerk down at the postal department? No, he works out at Hollywood Station. The Hollywood Station. How do you like that? He even works in a different station. And uh, he, he, you did it in how much time, John? 57 seconds. 57 seconds. And uh, I tell you, you kind of... Kind of had your heart in your throat for a second, but when it came right down to the line, that boy delivered, and as a result of the nice program, he'll probably get lots of calls from his friends. (laughs) They know a good one now when they hear one. Well, Mr. Mitchell, you have a friend who trusts you, and you must be the kind of a fellow who merits it, and you win from forever yours an all-expense vacation at the luxurious Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas, and you'll be flown there on a 300-mile-an-hour TWA Transworld Airline Constellation. Have some fun, huh? That's wonderful. And besides that, because you have such a nice friend, we're going to send him from us an electric shaver and a Shavex, the amazing attachment that doubles the power of any electric shaver. Thanks from People Are Funny for proving that people are swell. Goodbye, Sammy. Following that People Are Funny show, I got into, uh, with John Goodell, I got into the daytime TV with a show called House Party, which was really among the first of all the magazine shows. It was not a game show or a quiz stunt. Or it was a special guest. It was music. And it had one distinguishing characteristic, which was different than anything that had ever been done before. And that was my conversation with four children, aged four to ten years of age, picked from public schools by their teachers, and then off-the-cuff, unrehearsed interviews that lasted for six minutes at the end of each half-hour show. The funny thing about that is that I did that show for 26 years, five days a week on CBS. Today I meet uh, people wherever I go on my lecture circuit who say to me, I always used to watch your kids' show. Well, that was the impact. It was five to six minutes out of the whole half hour, but that's what they remember. That's what struck a nerve, and that's what characterized probably more than any other single thing my work over the last 45 years. At the end of the 1953-54 radio season, People Are Funny moved to NBC, where it would remain on the air until June 10, 1960. Although the television version of the series ended on April 1, 1960, the network aired encores until April 13, 1961, making People Are Funny the first TV game show to air in reruns. The imagination helped an awful lot. Because there's a funny thing, you know, we do those outside stunts where you send somebody out and then bring them back. And the reason, one of the reasons the network people turned that show down originally is they said, you mean you give a man outside to do something and you never cut outside with a tape machine or, I mean, with a record or listen to it and you never do anything till he comes back? And I said, you just hear what happened? He says, that's right. He says, that won't work. You've got to hear him while you're outside. Well, I said, no, that won't work, because first place, it interrupts what you're doing on stage. Mm. The second place, actually, it's not very good. The imagination and how they tell it of what really happened is concise at the end, whereas if it had been picked up here and there, you know, there's nothing so dull as an open mic on a street before anything is edited. They just, now we'll go back to them in a few minutes, you know. Hint Hunt, presented by the makers of Chiffon Flakes and Armor Canned Meats, and Lum and Abner, presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, usually broadcast on Thursday afternoon over many of these stations, 
will not be heard today due to the special broadcast which follows immediately. makers of fine American watches for over 80 years presents its sixth annual Thanksgiving Day greeting to America. Two hours of star-studded entertainment broadcast throughout the United States to our veterans' hospitals and to our armed forces overseas so that those loved ones of yours in the service may celebrate with us and shortwave around the world. Next time on Breaking Walls, as the calendar turns, so do our thoughts. We'll go from goblins to gobbles, and welcome in November with an episode all about American Thanksgiving in 1947. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Terror on the Air, Horror Radio in America by Richard J. Hand, and Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg as well as articles from TuneIn Magazine, September 1946, and Broadcasting Magazine, April 14th, July 14th, and September 15th, 1947. On the interview front, Chuck Shaden interviewed Jack Benny, Ken Carpenter, John Goodell, Shirley Mitchell, Arch Obler, Hal Perry, Lorene Tuttle, and Mike Wallace. Hear their full chats, at speakingofradio.com. Howard Duff, June Havoc, and Bill Spear were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Spurvac was with Art Linkletter in 1991. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell were with Jim Bohannon on September 12, 1987. Chuck Cecil interviewed Ozzie Nelson. Johnny Hayes, David Nelson, and Jack Wagner were interviewed for KRLA. Johnny Carson interviewed Orson Welles, as well as Ozzie Harriet and Ricky Nelson, while David Hartman interviewed David Harriet and Ricky for Good Morning America. Frank Brzee interviewed Bing Crosby and John Scott Trotter. And Dick Joy was with John Dunning for 71KNUS. Selected music featured in today's episode was A Wicked Thought by John Zacherly, Ghostbus Tours by George Fenton for High Spirits, and Traveling Man by Ricky Nelson. Special thanks to our sponsors, The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, The Fireside Mystery Theater, and Quietly Yours. Find them all on iTunes, or at their links in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaspin of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. By the way, Spurvac, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy, will be having their next convention this coming November 7th through the 10th at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to Spurvac.com.
Breaking Walls Episode 97 will open the holiday season with a three-month miniseries all about the 1947-48 radio season. We'll first look at Thanksgiving Day 1947. This episode will be available beginning November 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until November 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 96. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.